0: Coming to get you, Barbara. I ain't one to make a fuss about a thing like that. Make your wishes. They're coming for you. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Deep Cuts of Horror, where we analyze the overlooked and underappreciated films in the annals of horror cinema and decide if they are deep, Meaning we think you should probably give it a watch and we really like the movie. Or if it should be cut and you might want to find something else to watch because the movie probably wasn't very good. I'm here today again with Jacob. How are you doing, Jacob?
1: I'm doing very well, Dylan. (laughs) Thank you.
0: So, Jacob, do you know why we're here today? Not a clue. Okay, well, we're actually watching the movie Wishmaster, like we talked about last week, from 1997, directed by Robert Zertman, I believe the name was. So just a little bit about why we chose this movie. I was going through my list, like I do, of movies, and I came upon this one. It was produced by Wes Craven, and as you come to see in the movie, it has a lot of horror cameos in it from some very popular people in the genre, but I noticed it only grossed $17 million on a $7 million budget, I believe. And I haven't really heard much about it, and given the year it came out, 1997, that was the year after Scream came out and the year of Scream 2, and at the time, people were more, more or less just following the format of the Scream movies, having postmodern teens and uh, meta commentary on the subject matter they were and this movie is definitely more of a return to form that you would see in the 80s for better or worse <laughs> wouldn't you agree jacob
1: oh yeah uh i i knew that it was produced by west craven but this entire thing as far as i was concerned might as well have just popped out of his brain i mean i could i could run down a list of the tropes like on my on one hand of all the similarities that it shares with things especially
0: scream yes oh gosh absolutely and i can see why this movie might not have appealed to a lot of people because like like i just said it was the zeitgeist of horror was changing at the time People didn't want monsters running around killing people and cracking one-liners anymore. They wanted something that was at least pretending to be smart commentary and hot teens. And this is just uh this is just more of something if this had came out maybe 7 years ago, I feel like it would have had better success. Maybe. If not seeming too much like a copycat. <laughs>
1: I mean, exactly what you just said people were wanting to go away from is exactly what this movie And
0: is. I mentioned it to you, and it was just my thought the whole time watching it. It's like when, ask your mom, Mom, I want Freddy Krueger. And she says, well, we got Freddy Krueger at home. This is the Freddy Krueger that you have at home in the scenario.
1: Which is ironic because Freddy he, Krueger is in this movie. And he spends most yes, of it at home. Yes, at
0: home with all his little statues and stuff.
1: Let's let's make a list. If you don't care, let's play a little mini game real quick. Let's list all the similarities with a Nightmare on Elm Street. So we've got like the semi-strong female main character who has a tragic off-screen mm-hmm. backstory. We've got the the villain being someone who is semi omnipotent and covered in like. Ugly Bernie makeup. You wanna you wanna take the next one? I know there's more.
0: There there's just the cartoonishly outlandish deaths, and I'm not saying this is like. Yep. I actually think the first Nightmare on Elm Street is a good movie. This is more your late stage Freddy Krueger when it was really running out of steam and really running out of juice.
1: Oh, really? Really terrible one-liners yes. when you kill people.
0: Uh, as as is the case with the Wishmaster do you think we should go ahead and uh get into it
1: yeah sounds good to me oh shit i I just gave you my soul (laughs) damn it (laughs) actually please don't damn it i need that
0: so our opening narration is done by angus scrim who horror fans will know as the tall man in phantasm and he talks he gives us pretty much the lore of the jinn, meaning that whenever the earth was created, when God separated light from dark, there were creatures in the dark, and the dark were the jinn sorry for a minute I got it confused because I had also perused a couple of potential films and there's a movie that has a very similar premise with demons uh but we also learned that uh the djinn came from the fire and they want to take over this earth and enslave humanity what did you as someone who I know is a fan of opening narration and these kind of world building explanations what what were your thoughts at this moment in the movie
1: first of all in order for a film to get away with putting text-based opening narration it better be really good and really important this was not this was basically just saying back when we had angels we also had jinn and the are ooh, they are very bad (laughs) <laughs> it really didn't serve much of any purpose
0: so then from that opening scroll, we go to i believe it's ancient persia
1: yes okay. i i am very confident it's persia i don't know for sure
0: uh, it, it's kind of hard to put a map on it because this movie takes place in 1997 so obviously all the persians are white people
1: and there, the palace is very real yes. by the way like the, the realest palace <laughs> you've ever seen
0: it's from epcot but we hear the voice of the jinn and who we assume is some sort of a sultan. And the sultan makes his second wish. To see wonders is what he wishes for. Which is probably the most vague wish you can make.
1: I want to know what his first wish was. Like, if your second wish is just, I'm bored, dude. Show me some cool stuff. What was it your first have been wish? It could
0: to be the sultan.
1: I guess. Like, it's either got to be something super important so that you don't even feel like you need your second wish? Or it's something so mundane?
0: And from here, since you want to talk about similarities between Nightmare on Elm Street and Scream, we, we cut to what we learn is the creation of the opal. The jewel that the genie will soon be trapped in. And this whole opening scene operates almost completely like the opening scene of Nightmare on Elm Street where Freddy Krueger fashions the glove. He's in a workshop. He's pounding it out. We don't really know what he's doing until the final product arrives. And we cut to the streets of Persia where chaos is just ensuing. And you can tell this is exactly where this movie's strong suits are and it knows it this movie isn't so strong on the writing or the characters but they really try to go the next mile at least with practical effects and i'll give points where points are due creativity for the practical effects
1: oh yes yeah, the effects in this uh movie are amazing now i'm not too big a fan not the, of not the, the cgi stuff.
0: though not, not, not the, the, the cgi that, yeah. let that be known
1: <laughs> not the cgi Uh, And I'm not a big fan of the Gen's full-body monster Mm -mm. costume either. I think it looks a little silly, kind of just like some generic alien. But everything else is wonderful. Power Rangers. Like, the scene that we're talking about here, in which the sultan, or the, the king, or whoever he is, he has wished for the djinn to show him wonders. All of a sudden, horrible, malformed, demented things start happening to all of his guests, and every single one is like this unique story of its own that you could mm-hmm. probably have made a horror movie out of. Uh, most notably, uh, one, of the, one of the guests' skeleton gains its own sentience and starts clawing itself out of his body.
0: That's terrifying.
1: Yeah, that, I I was so hyped for this movie as soon as I saw that. I was like, oh my gosh, that's horrifying.
0: Honestly, this is a better third act than the third act we're given.
1: Well, but, but we're kind of given the same thing as the third act, honestly.
0: I could do a more sentient skeletons. Thank okay. you. Okay. Instead of sentient
1: I, statues of vague historical figures.
0: Yes, where you can clearly see the the red from their iris.
1: Oh, we're getting super ahead of ourselves, but you know, I love that they're still stone statues. So mm-hmm. that when you shoot them or or try to stab them, it's stone. Mm-hmm. And yet the dude can pull back his bowstring. How does that's that That's not stone. That's not stone. Yeah, <laughs> just the bowstring. Is <laughs>
0: it's, it's just something silly. So people are turned in stone. Things are expensive exploding and then we see this guy who i guess was turned into a snake which is kind of fun some sort of weird snake lizard man and he pleads to this what would you call it a sorcerer a vizier
1: you're you're referring to the gentleman who made the opal yes yeah some type of sorcerer mystic the the generic person who knows what's going on
0: to help them and that's exactly what the sorcerer is there to do so he gets to the castle and we get our first look at the djinn which was kind of effective for me whenever he's shadowed in a robe and you can only just see the bottom of his face yes i but thought he was really s-
1: good dressed up in a robe
0: yes except the fact that he sounds like um your chain smoking aunt
1: yes he has a very deep gravelly but In a strange way, very clear voice. I actually really Mm. like his voice.
0: It's just unfortunate that the costuming now for him just makes him look like the Buffy the Vampire Slayer Demon of the Week. So when the sorcerer is confronting the Sultan about what's going on, the Sultan is about to make his third wish. And obviously, his third wish is going to be to make everything go back to normal. But the vizier, well, the vizier or sorcerer explains to the sultan that making his third wish will unleash the jinn's world onto ours. Yeah, which is
1: essentially the premise of the film and why the jinn is a villain. Because once whoever summons the jinn makes their third wish, it gives the jinn and all of all of the jinn in whatever realm they occupy free reign over the earth because they kind of occupy a
0: between world and we get a very unfortunate computer graphic of i guess them in this in-between world trying to come through into ours it's very unfortunate kind of looks like the remake of nightmare on elm street when they have (laughs) freddy coming out of the wall but they decide to do it uh with computers instead of practically
1: which is for this entire era of movies was almost always a bad idea
0: oh it was a bad idea when they did it 20 years later in the remake of nightmare on elm street that whole movie was a bad idea it was a bad idea but moving on (laughs) as, as a complete
1: well this is not a complete aside but just as a little note the sorcerer's name is apparently like zoroaster or something like that i'm just wondering if that's important right because like that's the guy who made zoroastrianism Mm-hmm. Uh, which which is a real religion that I, I don't know too terribly much about but I thought that was very like that was a very prominent name to use for this relatively minor character right and, and in some certain sense that would have just been like if this guy's name was Jesus
0: maybe I could see it so he defeats a jinn, and st- well he doesn't stop everything going on that's something that's interesting to note this is as we find out later in the story this is pre-Islamic Persia He's able to trap this djinn in the opal before making the third wish somehow by saying some fun words. And the, rupal, the opal lights up and the djinn is assumably trapped in it. That doesn't undo the wishes though. So all this chaos is still going on. And I would have loved the rest of this movie just been undoing all this chaos.
1: But you want, you want the entire movie to be set in pre-Islamic Persia?
0: It would be better than what we got.
1: Uh, I'm not sure if I agree with that.
0: It would be like a little Jason and the Argonauts adventure. Mostly just because of the reanimated skeletons.
1: Imagine all of the CGI they would have had to do to have this be in pre-Islamic Persia. I mean, you saw that, what you called it, the Epcot castle. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just straight out, it looks like it's out of a video game to me. Like, it's horrible.
0: They either needed to use more CGI or less cgi because if you use more you can kind of go into that uncanny valley in your mind and you can just accept the crappy cgi
1: i was intrigued by this i i've not seen many horror movies that i would consider to be in the sort of just generic slasher genre that begin in pre-islamic persia with sorcerers and supernatural creatures it definitely wasn't what I was expecting, and I was at this point very pleasantly surprised. Like
0: I also mentioned beforehand before we filmed the, or started recording the podcast, this movie gave me what I wished for, but like the Wishmaster, it twisted it and distorted it, and now I feel like I'm missing a piece of my soul because of it.
1: <laughs> yeah, which I'm just going to go ahead and preface it now. I, I feel more passionately I'll say about this film than I have any of the others that we've reviewed so far. That is not a good thing but you know I I have a a lot that I really want to say about just about everything that happens in this damn movie.
0: Okay well let's get into it we go to the modern era where Freddy Krueger aka Robert Englund is some sort of a historical curator for a museum. Does he own a museum or is it a private collection?
1: I... I'm not entirely sure. It gave me the impression that it was a private collection. He seemed to be like a wealthy collector. Because Mm. he he made a point of saying that he doesn't really care about the history or the lore behind the things. He just likes having... It's just
0: weird seeing him on screen without his makeup. Especially because at this time, the character of Freddy Krueger had been dormant and wouldn't be making another appearance for another six years. The last one that we see of him in Freddy vs. Jason. But we're there at the dock because they have a statue that they are unloading that's supposed to go into his collection. Some pre-Islamic god, I forget the name of it.
1: I I also do not remember. Oh well. But it's a very very rare statue because it was apparently carved post-Islam but it was a pre-Islamic god so there were not many carvings of this statue from that era available. There
0: seems to be some issues with the crane operator who has clearly been drinking as he spikes his coffee he's uh, got to
1: start the day out right
0: yeah he's got to start the day out right i love how we keep taking things back to carnival of souls
1: <laughs> everything comes back to carnival of souls
0: robert england's assistant sees how shaky this crane operator's being and rushes over to tell him to be easy with it but doesn't really get to do much beyond that because the assistant who's played by mr ted ramey who helped create the evil Dead franchise is crushed by the statue because he stands
1: directly underneath the crate that is being Mm. lifted by the crane
0: and that's a that's a bit silly i get what they probably had was a good gore shot but they probably had to cut it for the mpaa
1: you can see that there is a an employee who is operating this crane who is clearly messing things up and yes, you go and not, to yell yeah, not at him efficiently. and stand underneath the thing that he's lifting. Like, it's not that big of a crate, right? It's like maybe, what, three feet wide at the most? Mm -hmm. This any other place in the entire world this man could have stood, he would have been
0: fine. Yeah, the logic of it doesn't make sense. But like I said, I think they probably had a good gore shot set up for it and it probably looked real gnarly. Unfortunately, we just don't get to see it in the final product. And if you're wondering why this seems important, the box opens up and the statue's destroyed but in the middle of it is the same opal we saw in the opening credits. So the statue was built to encase the opal which houses the gin, which becomes important later. This opening This opening first act does a lot of cutting because we have, and not in the way you want a horror movie to have cutting, (laughs) (laughs) you have the opening narration, you have them in pre-Islamic Persia, you have them at the dock, and then you completely switch characters and setting again, and now we are following these two people playing tennis.
1: Yeah, and it it kind of fakes you out continuously about who the actual main characters are going to be. Because, like you said, we start out in Persia, and then it ends up, well, this movie's not set in Persia. And so I thought, okay, this is going to be about Robert England. He's going to buy the statue, and then something bad is going to happen to him because the opal is inside. But no, that doesn't happen because the dock worker steals the opal. And so I thought, oh, it's going to be about the dock worker and people adjacent to the dock worker. And then it's like, nope, it's actually about these tennis players.
0: This movie, man. This movie, it almost broke me just a bit. The intro music summed up my reaction perfectly. In the beginning of the movie, they have this ancient harmonizing that's just a... uh,
1: (laughs) Oh, you sound very negative. Did you not enjoy this? It had
0: parts that I liked, but overall... (sighs) I gotta say it was just it just reminded me of all of the bad parts of really good franchises around this time regardless uh and I had high hopes for it because I really love this premise I really do and when we're operating in the premise I can suspend my disbelief and have a good time but operating outside of that the movie just kind of slogs around and I just wanted to get to the better part of the story
1: so who are our main characters
0: well our main character is a woman named alexandra and she seems to be playing tennis with a man named josh and they seem to be kind of flirty but there also seems to be some hesitance on alex's end between her and alex they seem to be very friendly very flirty she doesn't want to mess up their friendship and we kind of get our first inclination of the character of alex that she keeps people at a distance for some reason
1: yes she she very clearly has had some bad things happening in her recent past but it's not really clear at this point whether it's some horrible tragic backstory or just a relationship that didn't work out and we have this very ancient storyline of the guy who's in the friend zone trying to get out of the friend zone and then alex is Reasoning is that dates are a dime a dozen, but friends are hard to come by.
0: Perhaps this story was more novel when it came out, but when I saw it, I said, "Oh, friend zone, friend zone," and I don't even think friend zone was established as a thing yet. But
1: it's it's just always a very frustrating aspect of culture that I've never understood. Like maybe if you dated people that you had a good functioning relationship with, rather than strangers, your relationships wouldn't collapse so consistent. Like that's just such a strange thing. To me. I've never I've never really understood it.
0: And I thought this movie was just trying to build them up. They were gonna go through this whatever with the gin and it was going to be the thing that brings them together like in disaster movies when you have the divorced couple who don't get along and suddenly by the circumstances of the disaster they're forced to work together and rekindle their relationship
1: which is funny because i know why you say that but in a way it does kind of end up happening just not in the way that you would have expected
0: not in that way it's not a team building exercise it's through circumstances we find out a little bit later Once
1: again, that is kind of on theme too, right? It does end up happening just not in the way you expect.
0: (laughs) So she, she, from here, I don't know. They don't do, maybe we should talk about now, what are your opinions of Alex as a final girl?
1: I just found her to be quite bland. Bland. Uh, She didn't really, I didn't enjoy rooting for her she didn't really have much of a strong personality it was more so just i don't like that horrible things are happening to me i have a sister that i don't really treat like a sister and yet feel compelled to protect because she is my sister and i have
0: a entire... job that I, I have a job that i go to but i'm never at my job i am coaching volunteer girls basketball more than i'm seen at my job but for some reason my place of business is a major plot point in the story
1: and she gives really, like, overbearing advice to the people (laughs) that she's coaching. I'm saying a lot of negative things about her. I don't think she's actively terrible or anything. I just think that she's kind of boring. She's just the person that we happen to be going through this movie with.
0: Yeah. Yeah, in that's fact, probably the, only, the most you can say.
1: The only reason that we're following her instead of someone else is because she happens to be the person that touched the opal and released the gin.
0: You're right. There's really no significance to the character. They try to give her significance, and I don't think it's a problem with the actress per se. I think it's just the writing. There's nothing that really compels you to this character because there's nothing that really ropes you in to necessarily root for her. She has this past trauma that we learn about, but we don't really get into how... How that past trauma affects her life before the gin comes into it up until up until we even get this revelation that she has some past trauma she's relatively normal except she kind of keeps her male colleagues at a distance because it seems like all her male colleagues Really like her.
1: Are you referring to Josh as a colleague? I mean, I would. is jo- Josh oh. clearly likes her. Her boss just seems to be kind of creepy and invasive. <laughs> like, not her even necessarily a in, a, in a romantic character. or sexual sense, right? He just kind of gives me like Mr. Krabs vibes. I don't know.
0: <laughs> and the acting, it across the board, is very uneven. Not not so much in a bad way, but it seems as though they're giving different performances. No one was given a through line of what this movie was supposed to be. Well, some thought it was more horror. Some thought it was more horror comedy. Some people thought it was just comedy, and they played it as such.
1: With respect to the tragic backstory, which maybe we should talk about this later, I don't know. I love that this movie adhered to the very important advice of tell, don't show. Right? Mm-hmm. It would have been so crazy for us to actually see how this trauma affected her. I'm I'm very glad that they just had a conversation in which we stated directly what happened to her. (laughs)
0: what were we gonna have another cut in the first act
1: yeah yeah i I mean go all the way right it's better than just stating bluntly from the
0: tennis court we go to her being at work at this auction house as it were and someone brings in the opal obviously stolen the guy says that he got it from a guy who it belonged to his great grandmother or something like that and the her cartoonish boss nick ogles the jewel exactly like someone like Mr. Krabs would ogle a jewel. and Ogle a she... jewel.
1: I don't know if I've ever heard that phrase before.
0: So he gives it to Alex for her to inspect because I guess she's the assessor. That's her whole yeah, job, well... which, again, it's we kind of have this weird character. We don't really know what her job is, and it doesn't really give us any insight into who she is. And we don't really know why coaching girls basketball is entwined with her character. Like, all these things should tell us who this character is, and it doesn't.
1: You know, I never really thought of it until you brought it up, but that does seem like a— well, it's not a strange collection of things, right? You can have whatever job you want and still coach basketball. It Mm -hmm. just—it's not really addressed. Yeah, we don't see her motivations— We don't see any of her family members apart from her sister. Well, there's a reason for
0: that. Yeah, and there's a reason we don't see any of her family. (laughs) So in investigating this jewel, she breathes on it and then rubs it, which I guess awakens the djinn, and she begins hearing uh, the djinn thinking. And then we have a jump scare, and that reminded me, oh yeah, this is the time we're in the Chung Chung era of horror, where stupid jump scares come out for no reason, and it's just someone holding a book too close to their face and that's well, supposed to be scary chung
1: chung chung Chung. is that like onomatopoeia yes okay that makes sense. you get
0: loud you get loud music dun dun and it's yeah. just something stupid like a cat on the table that scares the person
1: you say that that's the era like when was this made was it like 97 or something 97 97 we're still in that era Every damn horror movie that comes out has some benign jump scare.
0: And it's very unfortunate. It's very unfortunate, especially since the movies we've been watching, the last couple, you don't really have that issue. Something scary happens, you might have some swelling music, but it's not abrupt, just chung-chung of a violin or chords.
1: How often does that actually happen, by the way? Is that something that actually happens to people in their everyday life? Like, are you just standing out there and some friend like walks up two feet behind you without without you hearing them, and then says, hello, and then you you just all of a sudden go, ah! <laughs> <laughs> scream your lungs out, and then you just turn around and casually say, oh, sorry, didn't see you there. Any
0: person who gets that startled has no business facing up against what they're facing up against. You need a prescription for that amount of anxiety. <laughs> like take
1: the music out of the scene and see if it still works. And if it still works, then maybe you can leave it.
0: And that's what made the first Halloween movie so effective not to get off off on too much of a tangent. Even though it was a slasher movie, it utilizes sound very excellently in that whenever someone's killed, they don't just do abrupt chung chungs of music. It's more of an accompaniment to what's happening in Instead of the whole reaction.
1: And there's that one jump scare. Where uh, I think it's the police officer. He comes up behind uh, the character. And just kind of taps him on the shoulder or whatever. And and it's the Mm -hmm. exact type of jump scare. We're complaining about. But mm-hmm. it isn't accompanied by a chung chung or a screeching violin. It's just quiet, and the tension kind of makes it work.
0: Mm-hmm. It's just something I wish they utilize more of. It's it's a smart horror decision, and I get the casual moviegoer enjoys the jump scares because that's what's quote unquote scary. And perhaps for a movie like this, they knew it wasn't going to be actually terrifying. They're dabbling in cosmic horror, but in a very light, fun way. As fun as you can dabble into cosmic horror. Ah, uh, I'm
1: not. I- I think they've somebody forgot the S when they were writing up like the the mission statement for this movie. <laughs>
0: I feel you. As much as I enjoyed parts of it, the weaker parts were just very weak. So she she says there's something in the jewel and of course her boss is worried about, it. Is it something that's going to tarnish the value of it? Could it be priceless? And he's just having a total boner over this opal and how much money it could be worth and tarnish. So she takes it to Josh to look at because apparently he's some sort of gemologist at university doesn't really make sense i feel like the whole auction house him being a gemologist story is just tacked in for the story with but, no yeah. real thought about character
1: and it's is it do we need to tie this to their characters i mean it is a little bit coincidental that she just happens to find the gem in which the gin is held and he just happens to be a, a gemologist or whatever the correct term is i'm not sure but it, it's not like it's making a great statement about the characters. Does it need to? It
0: would... Do, I, just from a story perspective, it would probably be better if they were able to tie those things in a bit better. Maybe in the climax, some, some information that Alex knows from jewelry appraising, maybe some of the historical knowledge that she knows from having to know the value of these things comes into play. Instead of us seeing the research montage that we get in movies around this time where they learn about the enemy.
1: Well, I I certainly wasn't too fond of the exposition dump, but I'm not sure this film would have been drastically improved by Alex shouting, Aha! I know your secret because I studied it in college, and it's hidden inside the gemstone. I I don't know, that would have just been hokey. Not that... A vast amount of this movie wasn't hokey, but I think that that would have made it worse.
0: Well, there are four of these movies, so hopefully one of them got it right.
1: Yes, as we all know, movies, especially horror movies, tend to get better with their sequels, so... We can keep our hopes up, can't
0: we? Well, I don't like to point fingers, but as far as Wes Craven is concerned, many people do consider The Third Nightmare on Elm Street a superior film. So maybe The Third Wishmaster will be the best one. Who knows? I really I no wouldn't idea.
1: mind watching all of it.
0: Yeah, we'll probably space it out and see how that goes. Just to revisit it. It's definitely not something I want to do continuously, That would be very arduous because I feel like it's just going to be more of the same. Oh, definitely. But eventually we'll get there. So she drops, uh, like we said, she drops this opal off to Josh who, again, tries to ask her out. It doesn't go so well. And we skip to Alex coaching girls basketball and she makes this great speech about stillness and when people are trying to take the ball away from you. And again, this would make a lot more sense if we knew this character a bit better. But we don't. So this speech is just a really great slow speech out of nowhere.
1: Well, let's let's take a look at this for just a second. Let's see Mm -hmm. if we can ascribe some significance to it because Mm -hmm. there is a lot of weight and emphasis placed on what she says to these young basketball players. I don't remember Mm -hmm. the exact quote, but something along the lines was, You have to be completely still in that moment, not still in your body, but still in your mind. You know, the world has to melt away and it's just you and, you know, and the ball or whatever the hell she says. Mm -hmm. Like it acts like she, she acts like she's some ancient sage giving advice to these people. And I'm trying to see if there's some way to connect that to her backstory, but I'm not seeing it.
0: The only way I could see is because that's what she reconciled with. We might as well just mention it. Her family home caught on fire, and while she was able to save her sister, she wasn't able to save her parents. And the fact that she wasn't able to save her parents has really killed her. So I believe her whole life she's been dealing with this struggle between contemplating something and just being reactionary. The reactionary being going and saving her sister versus she thinks if she had more stillness in her mind and concentrated on what she needed to, she could have saved everyone. So the only thing about this hero merit is that she has a hero's complex.
1: I guess so. We learned from her sister that she wouldn't have been able to save her parents. And you can always pull unreliable narrator. You know, you can always pull that card, Mm. but I don't think this movie's that deep. I believe we're supposed to take that at face value. She was not able to save her parents. And so the entire concept of, well, if I had just been more prescient or had had a greater presence of mind if i had been still if i'd thought through that moment i could have done it it's wrong like you're wrong
0: even when they're just talking about it on a surface level i can poke holes in her psychology and i'm not trying to make some grand statement about mental health or anything sure she probably had issues but i don't think the movie really put too much thought into her mental state going forward from this so i feel pretty confident saying that rational person could move past the fact that you were a literal child you wouldn't have been able to save two grown adults from a burning fire the fact that you were able to just save your little sister is a miracle
1: which this is a common theme though in a lot of movies and i'm kind of pulling up blanks as far as specific examples, but you'll always have this character who has some kind of mantra that they recite or some important piece of advice that's carried them through their life, and you introduce it very early in the story. And then at the very end, or in the, at the final confrontation with the big bad, all of a sudden that mantra becomes relevant and it's what saves the day. And I, I, feel, I the reason that I bring that up is because I feel like that's what they're doing here. They oh, yeah, didn't put, very as you said... A lot of thought into how this relates to her psyche or or why exactly she is even a basketball coach or where she got this advice. It's just something to set up so that it can come back in the finale.
0: And perhaps it would have played a little differently if we could see that she was more obviously haunted by this. But I think one of the issues we see, we see her in a professional setting. And as everybody knows, when you're in a professional setting where you are a teacher, a coach, and in a workplace you don't really get to see nuances of characters too much because you're in a work-centered mode, right? So that was probably a bad decision for some of the writing to have her in that setting where you couldn't have those character exploratory moments. And
1: there's really no good way of handling that because you're right. When you're in a professional setting, you either have to have your characters not betray their inner struggles or you have to have them show their inner struggles, but that makes them inherently unlikable because of how unprofessional they mm-hmm. are and, and how they have a lack of self-control, right? C- if she c- just started going off on these kids and like clearly imposing mm-hmm. all of her personal traumas onto them, that would tell us more about her character, but it just make us hate her. But I don't really think there's a good way to do it. You just have to see the characters in unprofessional settings. And we don't see a lot of her uh, outside of these professional settings, at least until things really get going.
0: Even when she's investigating people, you're still in that professional setting because the content matter she's wanting to discuss with people, you can't come off as a kook. <laughs> yeah. but
1: well, she clearly does anyway.
0: Oh yeah. But from this point in the story, it intercuts with Josh looking at the opal with some sort of laser computer thing which I don't think was even around at the time. He
1: gives it he gives the opal an MRI. Like like I don't know anything about gemology, so this may be 100% accurate and I would have no idea. But I just thought it was funny because it looks like he's given the thing an MRI.
0: And he says that it's the easiest job he's ever done that, it's clear. But something in the works triggers the gin to escape, the opal, and destroys the whole equipment. There's a big explosion and it has injured Josh. And from the rubble, we see this small little baby creature. As far as baby creatures go, let's say it could probably kick the part of Voldemort's soul in Harry Potter. It could probably kick his ass. But couldn't kill baby Freddy Krueger in Nightmare on Elm Street 5.
1: Yeah, okay, We're on the exact same page. I was sitting here thinking it's kind of like the little Voldemort fetus from the <laughs> Deathly Hollow. Like, just just make it look more grotesque and more alien and give it bigger puppy dog eyes for some reason. I'm curious, why do you think the gin was released at this point? Because we already had Alex, you know, kind of rubbing it and blowing on it and, and releasing, mm-hmm. arguably releasing the gin at that moment. So why did why did we wait until Josh gave it an MRI for it to be released into the real world?
0: Because cause the M in MRI stands for magic. And as everyone knows, you have to take anything metal out of your pockets and also anything magical out as well.
1: I mean, but seriously, like, can you identify a reason?
0: No, no. Okay. There's really no reason why this happened at this point, And it was honestly a bit confusing to me. Like, uh, this movie would have been we,
1: so much shorter if the gin were released the moment she rubbed the gym. And well, then the, he was like, hey, what are your three wishes? And then, bam, movie's over.
0: Well, assumably, the opal was held by three people after the time of the statue being broken. It was handled by someone at the yard, and then it was sold to the other guy. It was given to Nick, and then Nick handed it to her. Yeah. So why was it her and not those three other people? Surely they had it in their hand and rubbed it a little or put it in their pocket and it rubbed it. What's the significance to Alex?
1: Exactly. Like, you're telling me nobody rubbed this thing? I mean, are we off base? Is it not rubbing it that matters? Like, is there something else that we
0: missed? Well, they kind of ascribe significance to her putting her breath on it and rubbing it. And that's kind of gin lore is rubbing a lamp or rubbing a bottle or rubbing a jewel. That does it.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so I was just kind of assuming that that's what worked. Perhaps uh, it wasn't.
0: Perhaps it was intention. Intention
1: of all. It was a machine that did it. The machine doesn't have intention. This, this movie make just doesn't.
0: This doesn't make any sense. We gotta
1: move on. So Voldemort's fetus is cuddling with Josh.
0: Yes, and Josh is so much in pain, and Voldemort's fetus basically says, "Would you like the pain to cease?" And Josh says, sure, whatever, little alien creature. Yeah, I'd like the pain to see, do you wish it? And he's like, I wish the pain to cease. And of course Josh dies, yes, ceasing but... his pain.
1: So so th- this is important because this is the first legitimate wish-granting that we have outside of the introduction in Persia. Mm-hmm. And I feel like they really dropped the ball on this one because the entire like malicious wish-granting trope is that you get what you want. But in getting what you want, there is some moral lesson or some unintended consequence that makes you unhappy. And I don't feel like they showed this at all. He says, you know, I wish for the pain to go away. And rather than just being out like a light, damn dead, no pain anymore, he just like starts screaming and convulsing and is so clearly in so much more pain than he was before he made the wish. And then he dies.
0: So I, I well, that's feel part like... Of the, that's part of the issue with this whole movie for me when it comes to the wishes. They don't necessarily work for me as far as the wish goes, because it's not the person making the wish. It is the wish master... Phrasing the wish and then saying, do you agree? And then that happens, whatever it is. It's not a folly on the person making the wish because they were enticed by the ability to make wishes and then it turned awry by the way they worded it. The djinn is intentionally wording this wish incorrectly, and then they're saying, yeah, sure, whatever, man.
1: Which I I have a ton to say about this movie in relationship to the wider trope of, like, the malicious wish-granter, but I'm probably going to save that until after we summarize because I don't want to rant for too long. But the gist of it is you're absolutely correct. Like, this just doesn't work at all. But the issue is that it couldn't have, right? You said that the djinn is phrasing the wish, and mm-hmm. therefore, he's adding the loophole into it. But he's not, because the way that he construes these wishes, there would be no possible way to make a wish that didn't end horribly. Like, mm-hmm. it, would, it would have to be an infinitely long contract. Because exactly what I said at the end of the last episode that I was afraid of, the way that they twist wishes in this film is, I wish I were in Hawaii. And then the djinn is like, oh, but you didn't wish you were in Hawaii with your vital organs. And, and so they just die. Uh, and it, it, it's, it's that exact kind of stupidity that most of these wishes embody. And it's really frustrating.
0: I get that. I just wish we had more of, I guess, more segments with these characters making the wishes. So we got more of their personality and understood more what made them tick. And have them making the wish of their own volition and wording because that just makes yeah. it a bit more satisfying than him handing them the wish because it's kind of um, it's kind of nonsensical in a sense if someone comes up to you and says, would you would you like five dollars?" Well, no, not necessarily, but if you if you have five dollars and you're wanting to give me five dollars, I'll take five dollars. All you have to do is wish it. Okay, I wish I had the five dollars you you said you're already gonna give me.
1: I definitely agree with you in general. I, I do think for some s- rare circumstances, it's very effective to have the the gin phrase the wish for them because of the dramatic irony, right? Like we as the audience know that this is some malevolent, all powerful entity, and so we're processing the conversation as uh-oh, something bad's going to happen here. Whereas the character is just like, oh, this guy's talking to me. Uh, and, and so that can, that can be very powerful because of the tension that it builds. Now, that certainly doesn't work in this context because it's an alien fetus that's talking to him. It's not mm-hmm. some suave... Uh, dark garbed gentleman or anything like that
0: but it's important to note that once this wish is made the genie seemingly gets stronger and starts growing Mm -hmm. which one last
1: thing at least on the topic of this wish You, you you mentioned this in kind of your summary here and i don't remember if this is actually the case but if you do please let me know the djinn makes josh say the word wish right he's like do you wish it is that
0: correct i believe so which makes sense,
1: because you would think that in order for the djinn to grant you a wish, you need to actually implore the djinn to, to do this, and you have to say that it's what you wish for. And yet, for like basically the entire rest of the film, people just have to vaguely insinuate that they might enjoy something, yes, and, and they then might you grant en- their wish.
0: They might enjoy something that they really didn't even have fathomed in their head.
1: Like Like, it's... in the beginning, the guy's like, do you wish it? And he's like, yes, I wish it. Take my pain away. And he grants the wish. But then like, you know, three wishes down the line, somebody will be like, man, it's kind of cold in here. Right? I wish it were warmer. Mm -hmm. Or or no, 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 no. I wish like, I'd like it to be warmer. And it's like, aha, your house is on fire.
0: (laughs) You know what movie did this trope of wish granting a lot better and also featured a wise cracking individual?
1: If you say Aladdin, I'm going to throw something.
0: No, Leprechaun okay.
1: three. Yes. But
0: I have mean, Leprechaun three Leprechaun where they're in Las time. Vegas. Oh, there's one entry there that is on the list. Let's see. Can't give away too much now, but it's on the list for a potential little mini series I have planned.
1: It it is funny though. Leprechaun was what I had in my mind for most of the time that I was watching this. If Mm -hmm. this had been a movie that I accidentally turned to on sci-fi at like two in the morning, I would have probably loved it. Right? Like this is exactly the kind of movie that it's like, you know, you're, you're at 50% mental capacity. You're eating a slice of cheese (laughs) and and you're just like man what's on tv and you and you turn to this on the sci-fi channel that would have been a great movie
0: it really would have been but unfortunately the nature of the show lends itself to a bit of critical review yeah and it's at that point (laughs) that the threads start falling apart
1: yeah you know when you criticize something That's when it stops working.
0: With this scene, too, we learn that Alex can get visions whenever someone makes a wish with the djinn. And so she has this vision of Josh dying, and she immediately goes over to the lab at the university. And these people, it's covered by police and paramedics, they just let this woman into this active crime scene.
1: Ah, that's not fair. I mean, we have an entire scene where one of the... I guess you want to call them officers or officials in some capacity is trying to stop her. Right. And she has to talk not, to him. Not and...
0: very well. I feel like she wouldn't be hard to stop. She is a smoker after all.
1: Uh, that, that's not the point, right? Like she doesn't <laughs> just waltz onto it. She has to talk to people and they have to be like, who are you? And why are you here? And,
0: Also, it's a university. How did she find parking?
1: I mean, that's a good question.
0: I want to see where she she was upset, but she also had to drive around for 45 minutes to find a spot (laughs) that was in her color-coded reign of parking. And then also the 30-minute walk to the building.
1: I mean, she probably wouldn't have. She would have probably just parked somewhere illegally.
0: And gotten a ticket, damn campus police.
1: Did I did I tell you about like the time that I had to rules lawyer somebody over a parking ticket that I got?
0: Oh my gosh. At school?
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. So I was going to visit some friends and there were no parking spaces available. So I parked like in the middle of the road between two patches of like grass. You know how you'll have one lane and then another mm-hmm, lane, but in mm-hmm. between there's a little space. So I just parked mm-hmm. there. And I came I, I came out and I had a ticket right but the ticket was for not having a permit right and so i had to go and explain to the police that i do not need a permit to park illegally
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that's funny which
1: is completely valid right like if you're gonna give me a ticket give me a ticket because i'm parked in the middle of the road don't give me a ticket (laughs) for not having a permit (laughs) It I wouldn't have been j- legal if I did have a permit.
0: <laughs> you make a very valid point. Did you at least get out of it? Yeah, I
1: did. But it, I, I don't want to take us too far away from the movie, but you brought that up, and so I wanted to tell you.
0: That's so funny. I love it when stuff like that happens. <sighs> Something else that bothered me about this scene, though, is how she seemed awfully connected to this man for someone that she she just absolutely said she would not date. And this kind of sets it up for the rest of the film that she mourns his death and what we see in the end happen.
1: I, I am quite peeved by the entire dynamic between Alex yeah. and Josh. But I was, I was yeah. going to save that to the end as well because I don't want to go on some, like slightly awkward rant in the middle yeah in the middle of uh in the middle of the film
0: it's an afterthought this movie's kind of split up in two sections you have what alex is going through and then you kind of have the jen's adventures and so we we segue to the jen's adventures he's just walking the streets of whatever city they're in it looks like san francisco or somewhere and we see this homeless man who's just parked outside of a pharmacy and him and the pharmacist kind of get into it about him being in front of the store. Now this pharmacist is actually Reggie from Phantasm as well so it's another cameo appearance that I just really loved. I honestly thought their little interaction tit for tat was pretty funny.
1: Well, the homeless man and the pharmacist specifically are just this entire... yes
0: yes the homeless man and the pharmacist just their interaction with each other there was a lot of comedic animosity there
1: oh yeah the homeless gentleman is is one of my favorite characters in this film i love this guy like his his face is so endearing i love the way he speaks and he's so casual and laissez-faire about these absolutely horrible and like insane things that he's saying Mm-hmm. Like, like you can tell that he can just turn the switch in his brain on and off, right? Like he goes, he goes down the street, grumbling all these horrifying curses of like all the awful things he wants to happen to this pharmacist. And then when he's done, he's just like a normal dude, like just, just having a casual conversation.
0: And that's where again the second wish is a bit fumbled. If the if you had had him turn the corner into the alley and he sees this gin and he said he would have said something like, "Do you wish it?" And he said, "Yes." Have all that come true, that would have been great. But instead, we have this tit-for-tat with him and the djinn now, where they're discussing things. And he asks him, what would you like to happen to this man?
1: See, I really like this. So first of all, anytime the djinn is in his normal form, but mm. is clothed in some way, I think is really intimidating. Like you, you mentioned at the beginning, you liked him wearing the Persian robes. I do. T- I did, too. And I really like him here where he's kind of garbed in these generic vagrant rags mm, and he's got a mm. hood over his face and just like just that dark aesthetic mixed with his deep gravelly voice. I, I, I especially love. So what happens is the djinn asks the, the homeless gentleman if he really means all of these these curses that he muttered. And the gentleman is like, you know, damn straight. I, I meant them and the, the jinn is kind of offering to give him this and and he says you know like what'll you give me in return and the homeless man of course says you know i ain't got nothing but a handshake <laughs> and and that's when the jinn says well what about your soul which maybe we want to stop here for now because this entire idea of the jinn taking the soul of people who grants wishes what did you think about uh, sorry people uh to whom he grants wishes what did you think of that
0: they don't really ascribe much significance to it. I would get if in order to raise his army of other djinn, he had to get a certain amount of souls. I would get that, but it's not necessarily required. We're kind of to ascribe that doing this helps him be more powerful, but they don't really go out and say that. And there's no real significance in that outside of the first wish, where he stops being baby Voldemort and starts being Buffy the Vampire Slayer villain of the week.
1: Well, they do mention it later, when we start to learn more of the lore of the djinn, that he has to kind of collect souls from mortals by granting them wishes, and then that'll make him more powerful, and then he Mm. goes and 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 grants the three wishes to the person that woke him, and then, you know, hellfire and damnation and all that. So they do explain it. My issue is that I think it's dumb. It it feels to me that they are combining two very similar tropes, right? Trope number one is the malicious wish granter, so like the monkey's paw, right? Mm -hmm. The thing that grants you wishes, but they turn out poorly. And then the other trope is the deal with the devil. Right? Again, a very similar thing where somebody makes a deal with some dark, powerful entity for something they want and it goes badly for them. But they've just kind of crammed them together, right? Like mm-hmm. I don't understand the point of making a wish that's gonna go badly for you, and then also having to give your soul for it. That seems that seems redundant. Yes. And I, I would be more comfortable with it if it were always explicit. But that's another huge problem that I have with this film is that the entire point of the soul selling trope is that you as the victim are so desperate or so short sighted or unwise or just greedy and irreverent that you are willing to give up your immortal soul for some temporary pleasure, right? And so you knowingly do it and then it comes and bites you in the ass. In this film, only the homeless man knowingly sells his soul.
0: That's, that's it. what I was going to say.
1: Yeah, none of the other characters that are victims of the jinn offer their soul as a price. The jinn is just allowed to take it because he wants to, which and completely they barely wish defe- it. yeah completely defeats the purpose in my opinion.
0: The rules of the jinn in this are very loose. They don't really have to wish for something; they just have to want it. And they don't even really have to want it. It just has to be. Something that's brought up to them to want, and they want it. And the djinn also doesn't have to expressly say he's taking their soul. So it's not an agreement that's entered for their soul.
1: The one that really, really got me, and again, we're kind of going ahead a little bit, but it's the security guard. The security guard doesn't say, I wish for X. He doesn't say, I want X. He just literally says rhetorically to himself, I would like to see that. And then no, that, that gives the djinn the authority to grant the wish.
0: The security guard scene is probably the weakest wish slash kill of the film for me. But we'll get to that.
1: Yeah, which once again, you mentioned how loose the rules are. Mm-hmm. This guy, this djinn, he is omnipotent and, and omniscient. Right. He's been trapped in this gym for centuries and yet he's somehow able to acclimate himself to modern society in this short period of time. Right. Mm -hmm. That means that he is in some sense omniscient. So if he's omniscient. And the only thing that is required of him to grant a wish is that somebody says rhetorically to themselves that they would like something? Why can't he just grant the wish of every single person in the world who says that they want anything ever?
0: You definitely have a good point. It plays with the mythology of the jinn in terms of them being omniscient. Uh, now I do prefer how Aladdin's genie just used it to make topical 90s references, but I guess you do what you do in your itty-bitty living space. Well, like you said, the homeless man makes this deal with the djinn. He says, what would you like to have happen to to this man? And he says, get cancer and die. Mm hmm and Which, pretty much that's exactly what we see.
1: The the exchange between the homeless man and the gin, I actually think is really wonderful, though, because, like I said, the gin asks for his soul, and, and the guy says, you know, dude, I'd give you my soul for a shower and a bottle of Jack, or whatever mm-hmm. it is, right? Yeah. And the djinn's response, I just love this, he says, then you would consider the death of your enemy to be a bargain. <laughs> Which... I I just think is a very powerful and and kind of funny statement because he's taking it so seriously.
0: And the fact that they're not even really villains, they're not even really enemies enemies, to begin with. It's just a random business owner and a random homeless person.
1: Which I love it as well because the homeless man and the djinn are not really enemies. Most of the people that the djinn grants wishes to in this film, he has an actively adversarial relationship with. Mm -hmm. But the homeless man, they're just kind of chilling. Right? right and apart from the selling of his soul nothing bad happens to the guy mm-hmm. so he actually gets his wish which is really cool because that's how these things are supposed to work which yeah. like you see but, but go on with the get cancer and die thing because this was a really funny this is one of our first like properly grotesque death scenes outside of the introduction
0: Reggie from Phantasm who plays a pharmacist he gets cancer and dies but it's a very it's a very quick cancer it's as though he got all the cancers at once and they just all started killing him. Eyes rolling in the back of his head, foaming at the mouth, throwing up discoloration, veins crawling the whole thing. It's actually a really good feat of special effects and makeup work and actually did shake me a bit not gonna lie but i have a thing about body horror
1: it it, it's terrifying i mean it's layered with the the ridiculousness of the concept like this is some fast eating cancer man (laughs) like this is some this is some super cancer but even then like even though it's such a ridiculous notion just simply imagining in your head what that must be like to actually happen to someone
0: it's really Mm -hmm. effective I agree, and of course the homeless man Just runs off, freaked out When he gets to see it, the djinn's just kind of Tickled at himself
1: I also, I love that the intro to this scene Is the, the homeless man Uttering all kinds Of horrible, horrible curses Of all the bad things that he wants to happen to this guy And mm-hmm. then when presented with the Actual supernatural opportunity To get vengeance, he's just like Eh, I hope he gets cancer And dies <laughs> Like, this, is, th- this guy knows what's up. I like this guy.
0: <laughs> he was a good character. But um, transitioning to not-so-great characters, <laughs> we go to Alex, who had a vision of the pharmacist dying, and she's wondering what's up at her house. And sh- this is another area I wanted to bring up where the story doesn't really lend us any character development. One way we can tell something about a character is by where they live. And I don't feel like we get a good idea at all about this character by where she lives. I looked around it. It all looks like stuff that was just plucked and pulled from thrift stores, but not in a cute way.
1: I, I can't claim that I paid as much attention to her living space as you probably did, but mm-hmm. you're right. There really wasn't anything, any sort that of. That gives non-verbal us an st-
0: inclination of character.
1: Yeah, no nonverbal storytelling going on here. Not as far as I can tell. And. Maybe if we want to, if we want to talk about a little bit of speculation, uh, we're assuming that this is not the house that she grew up in, right?
0: Oh yeah, I think this is just her apartment that she shares with her sister. You think it's an apartment? Yeah.
1: Okay. Maybe I missed that. Oh yeah, I guess it probably is obviously an apartment given, given that they seem to live in a big city. But for some reason, when we were inside it, it kind of looked like a proper suburban house to me. Maybe I mean, I'm it just did, crazy.
0: But everything in the house. Just didn't seem like the character that we had.
1: And oh, and you, yeah, you're definitely right. It is an apartment because she wishes that she were back in her apartment at one point. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I, but I don't yeah. know. Even though I kind of knew consciously that it was an apartment, it felt like more of a suburban country house to me. <laughs> Uh, because that's exactly
0: what the decor is, but we don't really yeah. get that feeling from this character. And part of that's also costuming as well. The costuming doesn't give us any insight into who this character is either, very much. But I'm, I'm done harping on Alex as a character.
1: Yeah, we, we, can, we can stop that.
0: Yeah, and this isn't an Alex character study. Basically what she's doing right now is she's reflecting at the fire on Josh's murder and, well, Josh's death. We, don't, we can't really say it's a murder right now. I'm not even and, sure if you could
1: say it was a murder. Does the concept to, of murder apply to supernatural omnipotent entities? Uh, sometimes.
0: Sometimes. I mean, it does on the uh, Trans-Siberian Express. Yes. So she's reflecting on her friend dying, and it's also opening some old wounds from her past that we learned from her sister. is related to what we said earlier about her parents' being involved in huge fire and we learned from this that she had nightmares of people dying and fire before so she's they're probably trying to build up this red herring thing of her not believing what she's seeing in her head and it just being a part of the psychological problem she's had in her past just coming back up because they mentioned the nightmares and boom she starts having nightmares again but about the gin. what was what was your take on on this
1: this just does not work so we as because again we're
0: not introduced to a tortured character that this is a tortured character who has these psychological issues until boom she has them
1: we as the audience know that the things happening with the djinn are real so Mm -hmm. there's no uncertainty for us from alex's perspective and from the perspective of characters adjacent to alex it they think it might just be her trauma acting up but the problem is that we've never seen her trauma act up. We've never seen her suffering from any of these issues. And because we know that what's happening with the gin is real, there's no uncertainty for us. And so the only thing the only thing that this this trope can accomplish is making characters around Alex not believe her. Mm-hmm. And one, that doesn't really come up. Like that's not actually much of a plot point at all. No. And two it's a terribly frustrating and useless plot point. Like, who, who, how many people actually go into a movie really desperate to see people with mental illnesses ignored and invalidated? Who is just like, yes, I love it when that happens. Give me more of that.
0: There are some times when it's done artistically and correctly that it can be compelling for a story. <laughs> Now, this is before it became an actual trope that got overused and done more and more lazily. But there are times where that sort of story does work. But here, we don't have a situation where people aren't believing her about what's going on because of these issues. We don't have her denying herself or not believing things herself because of these issues the whole time she's operating under the assumption that these things actually happened so there's really no point in this except to kind of drive some animosity between her and her sister but that doesn't even make sense because alex's sister should understand that alex just lost a very dear friend so all her actions where she's kind of jaded against her kind of makes her seem like an ass
1: (laughs) yeah alex's sister is also really not much of a character she's just sort of a human MacGuffin, honestly
0: yeah yeah she just drives the plot forward at the end she doesn't really have a character either that's probably a family trait (laughs) the family of (laughs) non-characters you you know
1: a lot more about the wider ocean of horror movies and probably movies in general that i do so let me ask you this has can you think of a film or a story in which the nobody around me believes the things that are happening to me trope has actually made a movie better rather than just frustrating and annoying
0: salem's lot stephen king salem's lot
1: okay do you want to do you want to elaborate on that or, or yes it's a here?
0: story uh, essentially about a vampire invasion one vampire comes to town and then people start getting turned into vampires and essentially the whole town becomes vampires and there's a good significant part of the story where no one's believing the main core group of characters that this is happening you could also argue the same thing happens in the stand. And
1: uh, it as well. I mean, that's actually kind of the whole point of Dairy, right? Is that yes. there's a mat, in air quotes, magical reason that the, mm. the adults are all ignoring what's going on. Well, so I guess but you're right. It, it does work out sometimes.
0: Yes, there are times where it does work because it isolates. It, Done efficiently, it isolates the character to have to take matters into their own hands. It removes any point of authority like police or any investigator or armed forces being able to help them. A movie will probably do at some point. The Stepford Wives does this really well in terms of just gaslighting and... The main character, you see, it's a trope that's used a lot and to some special degree in thrillers because it just adds to the tension when done correctly. When it's done like this, though, it's just frustrating
1: it's Like because I, it I doesn't mean,
0: really add anything.
1: I'm so tired of seeing it. And, and it, it's so immature, like, especially when it's parents, like, you know, the, the little kid is like, you know, mommy, mommy, there's a man in my closet. Right. Mm-hmm. And she's just like, no, there's not little Timmy. Go to bed fuck that if my kid comes up to me and he's like hey there's a man in my closet i'm like all right let's get the ruger
0: <laughs> see you have a different reaction than me mine is mommy mommy there's a man in my closet come check it out no that sounds scary as hell go back to bed if he gets you scream so i can run <laughs>
1: i'm not your mother <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: would you like me to go check on it for you
0: <laughs> <laughs> And that's exactly how that is <laughs> Oh anyway
1: yeah, we, let's let's get back to wishmaster
0: Oh gosh so Alex goes to the shipyard where the statue fell and the opal was originally revealed and she starts asking questions and she starts reading information and she finds out about the man that was killed and the man that was also drinking on the job from reading these articles and checking out the scene of the crime during this and so it's just more Alex gathering information so from this conversation she's had with her sister there's no point where she is denying these events to herself she's going right into investigation and during this time, the djinn goes back to the university and goes to the school of medicine where we see him doing something with a body. Unfortunately, a student walks in on him doing something to the body and he says Do you something along the lines of, do you wish that you hadn't seen this? And the guy's still stand there freaking out saying, uh-huh. And his eyes just, the skin in his eyes just kind of melts over I mean, his blinded. face, blinded. He what we find out when he's doing, he's taking a cadaver. He puts the face of the cadaver on his face and it pretty much melts his whole body into this person. So now he can uh, walk amongst people without being noticed and also a lot cheaper for the studio's budget.
1: So that that seems like a really weird power to give the djinn, right? It's established that he can basically do whatever he wants as long as it's in service of a wish. But apparently, apart from that, He can also just cut people's faces off and put them on his face and assume their identities, Mm -hmm. like faceless man style, Mm -hmm. which seems really weird. I, I forgive it because it's obviously just so that they can have him walk around looking like a human. And in my opinion the scenes where he's a human are some of the best scenes in the in the film. So so I'm not going to be too harsh on it there, but it is super weird. What did you think?
0: I'm not going to be too harsh on it e- either because it has a practical application to it, namely that of affordability for the movie to do more, but also the limitation of him having to slink around in the shadows because he is such a strange-looking otherworldly figure. It allows him to accomplish more with the story. The actor that play I don't know if it's the same actor that plays the jinn as a person who does the the human body that the jinn is in but he does a good job a little too much maniacal grinning for my taste i believe i sent you a photo of uh, jim carrey (laughs) doing some face acting every time someone makes a wish that was very apropos
1: (laughs) very obviously evil man like comically comically
0: evil yes he's a regular person but he still has this voice
1: Also, once again, I'm probably going to harp on this every time it happens because I I love kind of trying to figure out the way it's supposed to work. Again, correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like the student in this scene says, or or sorry, the djinn says, am I to assume this is something you do not wish to see or something like that, right? He phrases it in the negative and that still allows him to grant the wish. So like if I walked up to the the djinn and I was like, I do not wish for a million dollars, would he be able to, like, grant my wish for 10 bucks or something like that? Is that how that works?
0: You're kind of getting into the Pinocchio paradox.
1: What's the Pinocchio paradox?
0: Basically, Pinocchio says my nose will now grow. What happens?
1: So that's a fun thing to talk about. I don't see how it's relevant to the point that I brought up, though, right? The point that I brought up was basically that, like, the, the gentleman states that he doesn't wish for something, mm-hmm. which, which is the exact opposite of wishing for something, right? Right. Like, if he said, I wish to not see this anymore, that would have been a valid thing to Mm, grant. Okay. But I don't wish to see this, that's not valid. That's you stating you're not wishing for something.
0: Okay, but, but that that does create a bit of a you understand the sentiment, but gr- grammatically it doesn't make sense. So the what? one rule with the gin it has to make grammatical sense. We have to have subject verb agreement and past part present and past participle make sense. Otherwise it messes up the wish. I really wish the genie would Oh, no, not going to finish it.
1: Yeah, okay. So first of all, a couple things to touch on here. Just in case we have any uh, listeners who are still in elementary or middle school or maybe even high school, that's why you have English and grammar classes is in case some supernatural wish-granting entity comes and tries to blind you. That's the entire reason that English classes exist. Secondly, this actually does matter because mm-hmm. we need to know how the djinn works, right? We know that he can only use his powers in service of a wish and that so, so, so the question is, who determines whether or not his power is in service to a wish. Is it God? And if so, then yes, God's personal opinion on grammar rules are very important.
0: I don't know, you bring up a really good point. We've already established, the wishes are very shim-shammy.
1: Right, like seriously, is God up there in heaven like, that checks out, take his eyes.
0: So someone could easily sue the djinn for misrepresentation? Yes. Someone comes up to him and says, you've been served. Do you wish that I appear in court? Yes.
1: <laughs> no, but you're going to
0: anyway. Now get out of here. <laughs> oh, the statue. I have it in my notes. The statue that was broken was Ahura Mazda.
1: Ahura Mazda, okay. I, I don't know anything about that, if it's real or not, but that's a cool name.
0: It is. So we cut to Alex while she's doing her reading. She learns about Mr. Beaumont and she pays him a visit. And I just gotta say, I really like Robert England. whenever he's just in normal... Makeup And he's just doing whatever the hell he does. It's just very pleasant and his character Mr. Beaumont takes Alex to his room of forgotten gods and I paused the movie to look at all the statues and I clocked two things that were very interesting. One, in this room of forgotten gods where the statue of Hura Mazda was going to be, there is a Buddha. There is a statue of Buddha in the corner, one of those little fat Buddha statues on the floor, and there's also a statue of Pazuzu from The Exorcist.
1: Cool. I didn't. So I, did, I made, didn't pay much attention to the background. So this
0: takes place in the universe of The Exorcist. You're welcome. So That's yet
1: another horror. Reference. This entire movie is like a horror museum. It really is.
0: So yes, Freddy Krueger has a museum that not only has Buddha, but uh, the demon Pazuzu from The Exorcist.
1: This has nothing to do with anything, but I was looking up uh, Robert England's filmography, and I saw mm. that he starred in a movie in 2011 called The Sexy Dark Ages.
0: I, I had yeah. no idea about The Sexy Dark Ages.
1: I didn't either, and I'm not looking into it any further than that. I just. Imagining Robert England in something called Sexy Dark Ages. <laughs> not something I pictured myself doing today.
0: Mm.
1: <laughs> oh, no, I shouldn't have done that. I just looked at the picture.
0: So. Uh... These events are happening at the same time with the med school student going blind and her visiting the Room of Forgotten Gods. And Alex just pretty much drops on the floor and starts having a fit when she starts having these visions. And Mr. Beaumont just pretty much washes his hands of her and refers her to Professor Durlath, who is a university professor of folklore.
1: Yet for some reason likes to harass the drama department.
0: Yes, and I just I gotta say every scene with this actress I haven't seen her in much if anything but I just really liked her she was maybe she was my homeless man wishing a pharmacist had cancer but I just really loved everything she brought to the scene she brought this matronly sense of knowing and there's a scene later in the movie involving her that is also very good pretty much all this scene establishes is more lore about the gin and brings up Forget everything you know about the modern genie. So I feel like that was more or less just to promote. It was a trailer line, a line that's gonna be in the trailer. Forget everything you know about modern genies, Robin Williams and Barbara Eden.
1: That is exactly.
0: And they talk what about it, it again. If you watch a trailer, I'm sure it's there somewhere. I think about these scenes and this movie and in thinking about them, this is about the third in about five segments where we learn about the gin. And it really isn't that complicated. And if you didn't want an hour and a half movie, you could easily cut about four of these. Your open, if you're going to have an opening narration, the opening narration pretty much should establish everything you need to know. And then you can breeze through it with the main character. Or don't have the opening narration and just have that all brought in with this Professor Derlith character. But instead yeah. we get about three or four separate rule establishments for the gin, and stuff is just repeated. It's
1: very, very weird that they committed the sin of having open, sorry, a uh, text-based opening narration, and yet they <laughs> still explain everything that that narration explains again verbally to the main character. It begs the question: if you were going to do this, why did you have the opening narration?
0: And it's really not that complex for the viewer to understand. Yeah. If Gen you're going to explain wishes. stuff, especially, yes, Jin grant wishes, and it's already it, kind of established they grant them wrong on purpose.
1: And if you if he finishes three wishes, the world ends. Like, it's
0: pretty damn simple. It, it really shouldn't be that complicated, but here it is.
1: Also, I don't know too terribly much about actual Jin lore first of all i do know that they do a hell of a lot more than just grant wishes i'm not even sure if the granting of wishes is a part of the original jinn lore they're just kind of like spirits and some of them are malevolent or at least associated with like disease and and, and their famine and things like that but
0: no i think th- the they're actually a... tied to religion though
1: well yeah they are they're, they're, they're tied to the abrahamic religions especially islam all that stuff kind of gets into a cluster it's like well this. This was adopted from X religion into Y religion and all that. But mm-hmm. the the point that I'm making is I really hate it when movies pretend to have the actual lore or, or stories in general. Right? It's like forget everything you know about jinn. It's not Robin Williams type stuff. Here's what the jinn really are, and then they proceed to tell Real you a whole shit. bunch of a whole bunch of horse shit that has nothing to do with actual jinn lore at all. Right, that's I don't want to I don't want to get into anything political, but like that that's that's really that's bastardizing actual real world culture and religion. If you're just gonna do your own thing, do your own thing. Don't claim that this is this is the real thing. I am a kind of masculine looking professor of folklore, and I am telling you that this is what Jin are really like. It's like no, no, it's not like that at all.
0: And then we get probably the stupidest jump scare in this movie, to my opinion. The, the whole scene takes place in this little amphitheater where Professor Derleth is overseeing this drama department's production of some Grecian play, I think it is. Not Grecian play, it's something else, but something that involves cultural masks. And this lady who's in the play holds the mask two inches from Alex's face. And when she turns, we see the mask and it's a jump scare. And she was like, I was just wanting to show Professor Derleth my mask I made. First of all, personal space. Maybe it's COVID. Maybe it's just me. But first of all, I am a stranger. You can come up and ask for the professor's attention in our conversation. How long have you been standing there while we've been having this conversation just holding the mask to your face?
1: First of all, maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's COVID is a really, really terrible marketing phrase. By the way <laughs> right, that's, that's very close it's very close to something that you just said secondly i think that this could have worked if uh if the professor like went off on the person afterward because you mm-hmm. said that you like her quite a bit i do too she has a very strong personality the kind of person that likes when you're uh, a st- stern and kind of mean to them right like like she's she's harassing these people at the drama department and right uh, the type of person
0: who wouldn't make a fuss about a thing like that yeah and
1: she asks alex if there's anything she can do for her and alex replies not until i have your full attention and then she immediately just turns to alex and says i like you we can talk i'm not even in the drama department that's how you know you're talking to a competent human being is when you tell them off and rather than getting mad They just admit that you're right, respect you, and come help you. So I love her. And I think this jump scare would have worked if she had immediately just went the fuck off on that student. and Mm -hmm. was like, what the hell are you doing? Have you ever heard of personal space? Get the fuck out of (laughs) here. Go. Go.
0: (laughs) You bring up a really good point there toward the beginning. Probably the only part of characterization that I liked out of Alex was that moment where she's having the moment with, uh, professor Durlith and she says not till I have your full attention I was like oh damn okay she means business she's doing something
1: I really like characters that are headstrong but not in a stupid way I talked about it with Saxton on the horror express and yeah Alex mm-hmm. expresses that here and I really appreciated it
0: I think that's why I also like the scene because this character seems to bring out some actual tangible attributes in Alex and but I like it's
1: quite it. a shame we don't get more of her Because as
0: you mentioned, we do
1: get a scene with her later. in And I actually
0: really like that scene. I
1: imagine that you do, but it's not, strictly speaking, a scene with her.
0: But still, the actress is great. So during all this, the Jin he's still doing his own thing. He goes to the police precinct and goes to the head investigator of, I guess, Josh's death and starts asking for Alex's address. And the main investigator, of course, says, you know, I can't give that to you that's private information why would you want that you're some weirdo and before he leaves he somehow gets gets the inspector to talk about this gentleman who has just escaped conviction time and time again murdered a bunch of people down a bunch of stuff and he somehow convinces the investigator to wish that he could be caught red-handed
1: yeah so this this isn't like a persuasion scene basically it's once again just something that the investigator says in passing so the Mm gin is talking to the investigator and then this guy comes in that the investigator and maybe their department in general has been trying to pin for a really long time and they never can the guy refers to him as teflon and he Mm -hmm. just kind of says man just once i wish we could get this guy red-handed murder one tons of witnesses right and mm-hmm. that just allows the mm-hmm. gen to grant that wish and so the, the the guy starts just pulling out a gun and shooting everybody in in the the general vicinity and they they kind of tackle him and the guy's wish is granted kinda that doesn't seem like murder one to me
0: no but st- i mean <sighs> It just seems like he could just kind of had a fit and started shooting people. But it's during this this commotion that the Jinn who has all this omnipotent power is able to go through file cabinets and somehow find Alex's business card for the auction house.
1: Very easily.
0: Very easily. What The only thing of note about this scene, as far as gore goes, the man who is having the fit rips off one of the investigator's jaws, and that hurt me a bit, seeing that. <laughs> Jaw stuff all also messes me up. There's a scene in the movie Mirrors with Kiefer Sutherland where a character puts both hands in her mouth and just pulls it, up and out and just rips her jaw off just seeing all those tendons and blood that's just creepy to me
1: so jaws and eyes that that jaws and eyes
0: a lot of face stuff noses not so much ears yes not
1: a lot of nose horror is there
0: well there's some we'll probably get to it down the line i'll try to find us a nose horror movie
1: all right, I would love that.
0: Oh, wait, no. The mummy where they do the uh, embalming and pull out the brains from the nose, that scared me every time. Ugh.
1: yeah, yeah, you're right. But even then, that's kind of more of a brain thing, isn't it?
0: Yeah, but the idea of it going up your nose, especially after having been COVID tested, uh, plays on a real world fear that. now. Yeah. Especially when you have movies involving mummies where they do the embalming process when the person is still alive. So they just take the tool up the nose and then yank the brains out while they're still alive. Uh, okay, different movie. Let's talk about something else. I can tell you're uncomfortable, Jacob.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry. I'm just having flashbacks. I had One time I had to go get a COVID test. They messed up the first two. So they oh, had no. to keep doing it over and over again. I felt so violated.
0: And that's what happens when you get a COVID test at a school where the med student is there on a football scholarship. <laughs> So it's from this scene we go to what we I've already established as my least favorite scene where the gin goes to the auction house and is confronted by a bodyguard played by Kane Hodder who everyone will know if you're a horror fan would know that is played by Kane Hodder who played Jason Voorhees in Friday the 13th part so- Seven, eight, nine, and ten. And what more can we say about the scene that we haven't already? It's just, they had their little tit-for-tat. The building security isn't going to let him through. And he say, tries to entice him, saying, I can grant your every wish. I can make anything you want happen. He says, well, right now, I'd like for you to leave. And he turns away and leaves. And that was actually kind of a fun scene. You can see, it was good acting on the gins part, because... He's in his human form and you can tell he's walking away and he hates every moment of it. I just thought that was really funny. And then we get to the part where he's like, the only way you're getting in there is if you go through me. And I'd like to see that. And then that just gives the gin license to do what he does next. Which is somehow he's absorbed through the glass in the doors and made flat through very, very terrible CGI and the Jen walks through the doors and the glass shatters. At least I think that's what happens because, again, it's really terrible CGI.
1: That, that's, what, that's what happened. So, firstly, I, I definitely agree with you. I love the way he acted the walking away portion of this scene. He It simultaneously looks like he's willingly walking away and hates every minute of it and also mm-hmm. looks like he's walking away like... Like, like he's trying to resist it, yet his body is being compelled to do it. Almost kind of like how bloodbending looks in Avatar The Last Airbender. Like it's this, it's this very I don't want to do this and I'm pulling against my own body kind of thing. And it's really <laughs> satisfying because we finally had the actual human response from the security guard when some creepy man smiles at you like Jim Carrey and asks to grant your wishes, which is fuck off. Mm -hmm. Right? So someone actually tells him to fuck off. And, uh, well, not using those words, that would be a different movie. Uh, but yeah, and he starts leaving. And, and and it's just so satisfying because you think, okay, finally somebody did the right thing in this situation. And then it's ruined. My gosh, is it ruined because the guy's like, I'm gonna stand here and talk to myself about how badass I am. This is a normal human thing that people do.
0: It just wasn't a good scene. And this is about where I kinda started checking out of the movie. I, I, I never checked had
1: my, out, but I can I never, see why you would.
0: I this is where the movie started to lull. I never officially checked out because I was always at least compelled to see what the next the next uh wish would be. The gin goes into a department store to buy a suit for his new body and he has a conversation with the lady at the counter and asks her would you like to be beautiful forever you know the marching of time Mm -hmm. and it's this very it's something that everybody thinks about growing old and whatnot but it's this very out there concept that you're not thinking about at work and she's like well that's life i guess everybody does it no biggie so she clearly doesn't care about this concept but then he entices her further saying, what if I can make you beautiful forever? What if you could stay young and not have to grow old? Well, sure. Do you wish it? Yeah, I guess. And then she turns into a mannequin at the store.
1: Which, it's important to note that she has reason to believe that he could do this. It's not mm-hmm. just something that's randomly brought up. So, firstly, there's this romantic tension going on between the woman and the gin because the gin is fairly handsome, and this is the first real scene with him in his human form and she asks him if he's paying with cash or credit and he says which would you prefer which is already strange but and then she says cash to get him to make a wish yeah and so he has a whole bunch of cash appear inside her bra which i kind of thought that the scene was going to end here and it was just going to be the gym kind of being nice and having fun with his powers but then he presses his advantage and he turns her into a mannequin. Which, once again, is just so stupid. Because there's no way that you can get around this kind of thing. Like, what if she wished I wish that I were eternally beautiful, but not a mannequin! And then he'd turn her into a portrait, right? And was, I wish I were eternally beautiful, but not a mannequin or a portrait. And then, I, then she'd he will turn her into a gemstone or something. Or a statue. Like, there's There's no way that you can get around this bullshit. It's just completely arbitrary.
0: It's a good scene in terms of body horror because she's turned into a mannequin. But she still seems as though she's conscious in herself, which is scary. But it pokes holes in all kinds of logic because it's not really something she desires or wishes for. She just kind of, okay, okay, sure, that'd be great. So again, the the intention of the victims of this, I feel like could have been better.
1: And again, th- there has to be some kind of, like, moral. It has to be the wishers' own desires backfiring on them. Like, a way that you could have done this in an interesting way would have but been... But it's not. If...
0: It's just their casual wants. Yeah.
1: Well, it's just semantics. Uh, mm-hmm. A way that you could have done this in an interesting way would be, okay, well, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? There's no objective standard for beauty. So he could have, like, transformed her into this ugly, like... Pus oozing monstrosity but had every single person in the entire world think that she's beautiful and interact with her as if she is beautiful like that would have mm-hmm. been one way to do it so like the entire world has a wonderful opinion of her appearance but she personally thinks that she's disgusting right that would that would have been an interesting way that you could have done something like this making someone into a mannequin is not that's just a that's just again god is playing semantics apparently
0: and also it's not really her wish It's not even her desire. It's just her casual want. This gin could have just as easily gotten a job at a grocery store and while checking people out said, would you like paper or plastic?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: And gotten souls that way.
1: The problem is that that's not a joke. That actually would have worked. This dude could have opened a lemonade stand. He could have worked at a McDonald's and he could have collected souls way more efficiently than he does in this film. Right, because every time somebody says they want some chicken McNuggets, now he gets their soul.
0: Because he provides them, and that's what the rules establish. There's no "I wish" clause. There's no. There's no interference you can have the genie interact with the, well, the djinn interact with these people and get their wants and needs without facilitating what the wish is going to be. But from the beginning, there's a lot of these characters where the djinn meets someone and he tells them what they need to wish for. And then they just casually brush it off or because he doesn't let it go like anyone in conversation where they're like, all right, yeah, sure, move on to the next thing. And then he's like, as you wish. And then does it. Which, side note, I was checking out something on YouTube about this movie, and it had the DVD menu. When you click play movie on the DVD, it has him say, as you wish. That's cool.
1: I have to say, that is probably one of the biggest losses in this era of streaming services, is that we
0: did not Early get 2000s DVD. interactive DVD menus.
1: Yes, exactly. Those things were wonderful.
0: Like the video game in Spy Kids 3.
1: Yes, or like, I think Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, like the whole thing was a Marauder's Map or something like that.
0: Mm-hmm. That was a great time to be had.
1: Since we're on this, by the way, I miss commercials. It's really weird... But I think that it's a valid reason. So ads before and after videos are disgusting and annoying. But there Mm -hmm. is something to be said about turning off the movie for like two or three minutes and letting your brain rest, right? Because when you're Mm -hmm. just watching something nonstop for two hours... It's harder to pay attention. Like you forget things because it's a constant stream of information back and forth. It's kind of like being at a lecture or or something like that, right? You can't pick up on every little detail. But if you have these little pockets of time to just relax and think about the movie or to go use the bathroom or get some chips, then, then it actually enhances the experience. I don't know what you think about that.
0: I agree too. I watched this movie... On Tubi, which at the time of recording this, it's available on Tubi for free, but with ads. So every 10 15 minutes, I was getting ads, but it was just the same ads for Paramount Plus. <laughs> and while they were funny ads, about the 10th time I saw them, they weren't funny anymore. I really missed having specialized ads, especially, say, Saturday morning cartoon ads, where you would get McDonald's toys just toys in general, they were bright, they were colorful. I'm an adult, and I yeah. get stuff like life insurance policies, car insurance policies, all that stuff. supposed to appeal to me, but it doesn't. I want, so- I want my own version of something that's bright and colorful.
1: And I, I want to make it clear, this isn't some nostalgia trip. It's not like I'm-, I'm nostalgic for commercials. It's just, it's very nice to have that excuse to stop paying attention for a couple minutes without missing anything. Because the Perhaps- alternative is having to self-regulate right you're like okay every five minutes i'm just gonna pause the damn video for for a few minutes and that's stupid
0: and commercials usually find a good place to pause where i can never find a good place to pause a movie perhaps it's just surrendering to the fact that the the commercials are already in place and it just is what it is and probably part of my gripe is that children's commercials are usually a little bit more indirect about buying something whereas adult commercials are like you need to buy this Kids commercials are, you need to get someone to buy you this. It's a really almost insane marketing strategy when you think about it. It's not you need to buy this, you're targeting children. You need to get someone to buy this for you. I don't care who, your mom, your dad, your aunt, your uncle, someone off the street, but get them to buy this for you. It will be awesome.
1: There's this weird meta commentary on advertisements nowadays where people understand that most people hate advertisements and so they'll advertise about how bad advertisements are like especially on mm-hmm. spotify like the irony is so thick that you'll get a spotify ad advertising a spotify service that removes ads right it's like hey i know you're listening to music but here's an ad about how you cannot get ads while you listen to our music <laughs> it's like, it's the definition of creating a problem to sell the solution.
0: Oh, well, we should probably get back to the movie. That was your yeah, ad break, by the way. If you needed to go pee, that was the ad break.
1: I think we should probably stop saying that, right? We should probably stop saying, let's get back to the movie. Because it's just been established at this point that we're going to go off on massive tangents.
0: We're going off on massive tangents, but it's just a transition for me. So, the gin is... What's the gin even doing? The gin is talking to Nick, who is our greediest character, and he's the probably the only character in this movie we've established has some sort of character trait that the ginn would enjoy fucking with. He's essentially a very greedy business owner at this auction house, and they have a little tit for tat. And the gin actually seems to enjoy Nick's company. Yes, and says, "Would you?" He picks up some old bauble on the desk and says, "Would you like me?" Would you like for me to make this hundred times more valuable? And he moves his hand and what was black is now solid gold and full of diamonds. I love that and he added
1: he... the diamonds. Like that was so so unnecessary, right? It was just like, ah, screw it, let me put some diamonds in this cup. Why not?
0: Well there's only so valuable you can make a little vase that's about six inches high. And he could have put the diamonds
1: like in like embedded in the vase, right? He didn't have to just leave them in the cup
0: look the wish is a means to an end and he's on a tight (laughs) schedule he has to find alex eventually this all leads to he can make any wish he wants come true and he wishes for a million dollars and this is where we get perhaps i know we have a lot of gore effects in this movie this is perhaps where we get the most mean-spirited kill i think in this movie we cut to an old sweet woman getting onto a plane checking out the register but she has to come up with a fiduciary for her travel insurance and she's like oh that's my son nick he owns an auction house and fills it out and it's a million dollar insurance and when she gets on the plane the plane just explodes it honestly seems so far removed from the actual story we're watching i almost forgot about it but i noted it in my work just so that it was there
1: so this is this is a pretty classic example of like the malicious wish granting and it's a Mm. middle of the it's middle of the road in terms of whether it works or whether it doesn't on the one hand wishing for a million dollars and wishing for your mother to die are two completely different things that have nothing to do with one another in the slightest so you could easily argue that this doesn't make sense but it also doesn't directly punish the the wish the wisher right the victim it's not like i wish for a million dollars and then they're like they give you a million dollars but it's inside your liver or some shit and you blow up right that would have been stupid no it's it's you get your million dollars exactly as you wanted but you get it at the expense of something mm-hmm. else or someone else so i i think in the monkey's paw story this is actually one of the things that happens is it not like, he wishes for a bunch yeah, of money. Yeah, similar. Yeah, yeah. It's, it. a,
0: it's a little bit more old-timey, but yes, that's essentially what happens And insurance policy comes through because of a major accident. So, so this one actually wealthy. works for me,
1: right? Like, I, I think this is, this is what more of the movie should have been. This, the homeless man, and if it had been phrased correctly, the blind student, right? Because if mm-hmm. you wish to no longer see something, then making you blind is actually a valid way to do that. But... The mannequin, the get-through-me, my gosh, the escape artist when we get to that one. That was just all sorts of stupid.
0: (laughs) Tony Todd, a famed Candyman.
1: So why why did you think it was Mean Spirit? Is it just because she was a sweet old lady? Yes, and from
0: what we've established, these things seem to have more of a personal connection to their folly. So, having it just happen to a random stranger, and also the fact this man owns an auction house, shouldn't he already have a million dollars? A million dollars wouldn't really be a whole lot to him, would it? Well,
1: maybe. It depends. Probably not. He seems to be rather I mean, a million
0: dollars, don't get me wrong, it's a lot of money for anyone, even if you already have a million dollars. But I feel like the tax bracket he would be in would lend himself to set wish for something, say, more a billion?
1: Well, here's the thing. A million dollars is not a lot of money to everyone. In fact, a a million dollars is not a lot of money to anyone. Like, yeah, if you're working paycheck to paycheck, then having a million dollars dropped in your bank account overnight is going to change your entire life. But it's mm-hmm. not like you can just forget about money forever. Like a million dollars is really not that much. And especially compared to someone who has a billion or more dollars, people don't realize how big a difference a million is to a billion, right? That That's an absolutely enormous difference. Because, because in order to get to a billion, you have to pass the hundred millions, right? So $999 million is less money than a billion dollars. I know that that sounds obvious when you say it out loud, but a lot of people don't think of it that way. So, like, if you're a billionaire, a million dollars is completely inconsequential.
0: Right, but I feel like at his level, that would at least buy him, or at least sufficiently fund, a second location if he wanted to do a second auction house. But I feel like since his whole thing is jewelry and antiquities, he's going to have enough money to where a million dollars isn't going to be enough.
1: I don't understand why it has to be relative at all. Like I agree with you that a million dollars is a weird thing to wish for.
0: Why is it always a million
1: dollars? Well, why why can't you wish for uh, fifty million dollars or a hundred million dollars or a billion? That's what yeah. I
0: was. That's what I was saying. Or you've why don't you just wish? Man, you've seen this man turn a vase into pure gold filled with diamonds. You know he can do anything, so a million dollars just seems like you're shortchanging yourself.
1: Or why don't you just—we're uh, assuming that this is not going to be maliciously granted, by the way, because obviously if you wish for infinite money that that would cause horrible inflation and then everything would, everything would get screwed up. But why don't you wish for just, like, whatever you want to come true or anything like that? It's just—a million dollars is just this fixed amount in people's minds It seems so weird to me. It's like, why is it always a million dollars?
0: They need to make a sequel to this movie where one of the curses of the djinn is two guys just follow him around for 20 minutes deconstructing their wish and why it's stupid. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I, can't, I can't tell if you're insulting the movie or you're insulting me at this point.
0: <laughs> We're insu- I'm insulting each of us.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: We just go around deconstructing the wish and the fulfillment of that wish. Could have been well, better.
1: So- clearly someone has that job, though.
0: Not in this movie, apparently. <laughs> um, so getting away from this scene, that's pretty much all we get from that scene other than he finds out where Alex lives through it and we're given over to another basketball scene where the Jen also makes an appearance and she kind of has a freak out about it. This, to me, is kind of where the movie gets a bit disjointed in its plot and it's found out that there's only about 15 to 20 minutes left of the story, so they have to wrap things up. You cut to her at her house after the game, after she's seen the gin there in the stands, having a conversation with the detective who said a guy came over looking for her and her information, and something happened. And right in the middle of that, something strange happens to the man, and... Alex gets this flash of all these people having this strange reaction and finding out that their souls are actually being absorbed into the gym and into the jin himself which causes her to have another little fit on the floor and the jin calls her saying that the only one that she's the only one that can help in their pain and suffering he calls her on the phone Does he not know there's a psychic link? He does because he obviously talks to her, but he calls her on the phone.
1: I'm gonna sound like a broken record. I'm sorry. I I wish that I had more to say, but it just doesn't make sense. Like, first of all, the fact that the dude can just take all of their souls and that just kills them immediately, that doesn't make any sense. What's the point of wishing for a million dollars if you are then going to die and go to hell The next day, they have to at least be given the time to enjoy what they wished for before it bites them in the ass. Secondly, what is the jinn's motivation here? You're right, because yeah, he calls her, he appears at the basketball court just to spook her for a little bit, and then later he goes incognito to try to trick her, like. What are you doing? What is your plan?
0: It's the early 90s, well, it's the late 90s. He could have honestly just paged her. Why is this even his
1: plan? I don't understand. Why can't he just masquerade as a decent guy for like five minutes?
0: Because that's what they do in the fourth movie.
1: Grant people's actual wishes in a way that they like. You're going to get their souls anyway, you can torture them later, and then get her to make her third wish and then take over the world. Like, that would have been so much easier.
0: This movie just misses the mark, especially toward the third act. But we get our next scene with the professor of folklore, because this is the only person Alex feels she can turn to at this point. And they're talking about the djinn. And it doesn't. It takes her a long time to learn something is off, but it, t- it should take a keen-eyed audience member very little, because the professor starts offering her things, saying, Are you chilly? Would you like for, Would you like if I turn the heat up? Do, you, you, want <laughs> Do you want a drink? Do you want drink? Do you want something to eat? Would you like me to grab that for you? And she said, "Stop trying to get things for me and just tell me." And then so, she finally gets the hint.
1: I think I had a little bit of a different interpretation of this scene than than you and maybe what a lot of people might have had. I kind of assumed that Alex knew something was wrong. At the very least, halfway through this scene. Maybe, maybe not, but I think it would be extremely to her disservice, if so, because she's clearly uncomfortable, she's clearly suspicious, and she knows that the entity that she is entangled with is something that wants to grant her wishes. So, I was just kind of under the assumption that she did, in fact, realize it. What did you think?
0: I didn't. I didn't. She just seemed kind of clueless and in her head until the moment that this lady wasn't the lady she knew. I I assume she figured out once she was offered the armoire. Your boss would really like this armoire. It's nice, huh? Just going to give things? Like, you're giving away your prized possessions. In my head, I'm thinking, okay, this is a red flag. This is a red flag. I'm not thinking she's a djinn. I'm thinking she is she's potentially going to harm herself and she's giving away her prized possessions. (laughs) (laughs) We need to help this woman.
1: So there's a really common scene in horror movies where the main character will be under so much stress that they snap at somebody who is well-meaning and then they have to apologize for it and and talk about how much stress they're under. I feel like they kind of did this in this scene because Alex says, what no you know i'm not hungry i'm not cold i'm not thirsty why do you keep trying to do things for me and then she kind of immediately regrets it and you can tell that she feels like she was rude and she's apologetic Mm -hmm. and i think it's funny because throughout this entire scene i was thinking like no alex you're not in the wrong here this is super weird and super annoying real people don't act like this don't feel sorry
0: First of all, how did she know where the lady lived?
1: I was curious about that as well. You don't tend to trade addresses with random people that hunt you down at your workplace.
0: Maybe you did in the 90s. From this little vignette, she finally comes to realize that the reason this professor is offering her all this stuff is because the professor is actually the gym trying to get her to make her three wishes. Which is very stupid given the context. Imagine wasting your three wishes on something to drink heat, and an armoire.
1: Which, again, I, I know I just kind of brought it up, but if if the Jinn's plan was to accomplish this through deception, why was he being all overtly evil the, for the entire time? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and why was Alex not notified of the professor's death? Every time he's killed somebody prior to this, she's had some type of weird vision, and, and she's gone into agony about it. And she wasn't notified of the professor's death at all. So again, super weird.
0: Perhaps it happened in conjunction with all the souls being absorbed. And I don't so know. That's me that, playing that would devil's like advocate.
1: Dis- disguise it or something?
0: Like I don't or maybe know. once
1: the souls are absorbed, then it no longer notifies her.
0: I don't know. We're supposed to be focusing more on the kills than the story, but <laughs> we're here for the story, so this that's where the movie falls apart.
1: We're in the wrong place.
0: So here's the funny part. The djinn turns into his human form, and then he turns into the jinn's true form, which is just silly to me.
1: Why? Why? Because he, he bothered with the transition?
0: Yes, and he offers Alex one free wish, just to get her in the spirit of things. And she wishes that he would destroy himself and blow his brains out.
1: Once mm. again, Like just like the security guard, why are you being unnecessarily specific? If you had just wished for the jinn to destroy himself then that possibly could have worked because he's obligated to destroy himself. You know, you could have said, I wish you will destroy yourself such that you can never recover. But no, instead she's like, I wish that you will destroy yourself. Dot, 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 dot. Blow your brains out right now. What? Why? Why did you say it that way?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And he does it, but that doesn't do anything because, as he says, that which is eternal cannot die. But if it's any consolation, that hurt like hell.
1: That was stupid. That was. That line. What did you think of that line?
0: It was stupid, but it was a line that worked for me.
1: Why did it work for It just did.
0: This movie has fully gone off the rails into goofy territory, so you can either swing with it or you can swing out of it. And.
1: He, you know, Freddy Krueger can get away with it because he's just a guy. This is an immortal, eons-old being. Like, just like we talked about in Horror Express. Like, this guy has seen the history of the Earth, the history of humanity, like, even dating back to, you know, the creation of the universe. And yet he says stupid fucking one-liners like, But if it's any consolation, sweet Alex, that hurt like hell. It's <laughs> like... Which I mean, this guy knows what hell feels like. Am I supposed to take him at face value? Like, does getting, does shooting yourself in the head actually feel like literal hell? Cause, cause this guy would know, wouldn't he?
0: This whole, this whole damn thing. So we go to Alex using her first wish, her first official wish, which is to know what the djinn is. And she explains herself. She, she even says, "I tell my girls always know your enemy." So I want to know what you are. And the Jin <laughs> takes her inside of his jewel, which resembled the layman configuration from the Hellraiser movies. It's just I've a not little, seen them. It's just kind of what it looked like, which was just something I noted. And she ends up somehow hearing all these screams and seeing the tortured people, uh, the souls that he collected. And she's she's being chased by this giant weird devil dog thing.
1: First of all, the djinn can't kill her if he kills her he can't grant the rest of her wishes so at a certain level she doesn't have a reason to be afraid unless he's allowed to do whatever he wants with her right so like can he not just capture her and torture her and like force her to make those wishes maybe that's his plan
0: but as Jafar said you'd be surprised what you can live through
1: and where are all the other people Right? So we see, like, some of the souls that the djinn has collected through this movie. But mm-hmm. this is clearly not the first time this has happened. At the very least, he'll have the souls of, of all the people he did this to back in Persia, including the Sultan. So where are they? Are they in a different wing of the gym?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, you cycle out the new ones. Okay. And just add the others to a collection. Just so makes th- sense.
1: This guy really believes in learning by doing. Mm-hmm. She wishes to know what the djinn is, and so he's like, okay, well, let me just put you in my djinn, because I... I guess that checks out. God said that this was a sufficient granting of your wish.
0: I want to know you. And then he twists the wish to be the biblical sense of knowing him.
1: It's like when you have a teacher who says that they believe in learning by doing, but what that actually just means is that they can't fucking teach, and so they're gonna make you do it yourself.
0: Yeah. Yeah any information you get if it's not in the teacher's edition you're not getting it so while alex is being chased by this devil dog she wishes she was back in her apartment alone without him her phone this was another scene that just the phone rings it's the gin on the line she says fuck you and hangs up which is a whole mood that's pretty much me every time i have to answer the phone
1: It's one of those pandering things, like when, you know, when when a comic book character, like, looks into the audience and says some cheesy one-liner. That's exactly what this was. It was like, fuck you! And as the audience, you just knew that you were being pandered to. It was like, I'm supposed to cheer and think that this is awesome. Yay, Mm -hmm. you tell him to fuck himself.
0: Yeah, it's just silly.
1: Also, she didn't wish to be in her apartment with her sister. You know, that would have saved a lot of trouble as
0: well. Yes, because her sister has gone to the event that Robert England's character is throwing Mr. Beaumont at his house. I'm not really sure how they both got invited to this event. They're not really connected in any way, and I'm not even sure why there's an event given there's no statue to unveil.
1: Extremely excellent point.
0: But we gotta have the third act happen somewhere, so that's where it is. And she finds out that the genie is gonna probably come for her sister since he can't kill her and family's really important so she is like you said the MacGuffin for the third act of this movie is keeping her safe so we cut to this party the bouncer is there at the door and the gin walks up and it's almost pretty much exactly like whenever the guard was at the auction house doesn't really serve a purpose why they are having this interaction the interaction's about the same he won't let him in It's a whole problem, but he convinces him that he wants to not live a mundane life and to escape the everyday. This is one of
1: the biggest stretches.
0: This is a stretch. uh, And so when this wish is ultimately granted, his desire to escape is translated into him being in a straitjacket in a water tank. And he said Houdini did it in eight minutes or two minutes.
1: Yeah, so, okay. So How let's do you look know
0: about Houdini? Because he knows everything.
1: That's what I was saying, right? He's like omniscient. And yet for some reason he, he makes shitty one-liners and has to be physically present for wishes. I much, okay.
0: prefer, I much prefer topical 80s movie references, genies.
1: So there's two ways you could interpret this wish. Number one is that he wants to escape his mundane job and have a more exciting job. And in that case, being an escape artist fulfills that. Mm -hmm. But he also wished to escape in the sense of being an escape artist, which is why he made him an escape artist in the first place. To fulfill the first half of the wish, you could have made him a crocodile hunter. You could have made him a police officer, right? Like, you could have done anything. The reason that it's an escape artist is because he used the word escape. And yet he doesn't escape. He dies. He wished to escape... And then he didn't escape. That's not a valid fulfillment of the wish.
0: I just love this movie because the logistics are so off, you can argue it all day. I I feel like, you know, I I feel like
1: we are probably coming off as really negative, or at least me. I'm coming off as really negative and really critical. I enjoy thinking about this stuff. I enjoy (laughs) trying to figure out how it all works. And yeah, I enjoy complaining about it. So like, I'm having a good time, but damn, does this shit not make any sense.
0: And this movie knows what it is. It's here for gore effects, mostly. And it does that pretty well when it's not computer animated. The rest of it's where it starts to fall a lot, actually. The reason
1: that this uh, scene disappointed me especially is because the bodyguard was pretty cool. Like, he was not budging. He was telling this Jin what was what. He had no intention of letting him pass. It looked like it might come to blows. And then, for some reason, he just submits to being psychoanalyzed with the most profound of revelations that any human being can ever come to, which is that some people don't like their jobs. Oh my god. I never knew that before.
0: Can you believe that this is the only movie that was released in theaters? This was
1: the only movie ever that was released in theaters. This is the only movie that exists. In no, the franchise. I know, I know what you mean. And yeah, I, I can absolutely believe that. <laughs> like literally, Go out for a day. Seriously, let's go out for a day and try to grant people's wishes. I would love to see what happens. Just go to Walmart. And when you go to the, to the cashier, be like, wouldn't you like to escape? from this job. (laughs) See what happens.
0: Alex makes her way into the party. I guess she completely overlooks the water tank with the dead bouncer in it but she finds her sister and her sister shannon is just not having it with her crap for some reason they probably cut a scene somewhere explaining why but she says i have talked to an interesting man you know the guy from the basketball game and we don't have a scene with them at the basketball game talking he's just looking pensively Alex. So, whatever. Um, but the djinn in human form is talking to Beaumont from across the way, and Beaumont wishes that he could throw a party that would be remembered for centuries. Or he at least says he would love to have a party like that.
1: Yeah. Specifically, a party like the one the djinn is referencing, which mm-hmm. is the one that the djinn himself created in the introduction. Mm
0: hmm. So, a. In this event, there's a lot going on. Some of it works, some doesn't. You have moments where people in the audience, uh, well, not an audience, in the party, one is turned to glass and explodes. Piano wire comes to life and starts grabbing people and killing people. Tentacles come out of a statue, and I want to say it's Pazuzu statue. And kill people uh people just randomly catch on fire all
1: of the artwork comes to life yes
0: there's some weird animatronic creature that comes out of this guy's neck
1: i'm pretty sure well, when when did alien come out do you remember off 70s The, top of your head? the 70s. 70s yeah and so that, that was like almost 30 years uh before 20 97 97 would be 27 years after 1970
0: okay it came out in 79
1: okay so yeah 20 years uh, and I'm pretty sure that I saw several references to, like, the the emerging of an alien from a stomach. Yes,
0: you would, you would not be off base if you made that assumption. That was very on-the-nose.
1: I don't remember if it was in the intro or if it was in this scene, but there were definitely, like, at least one or two references to aliens.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. One line that I thought while the djinn is trying to antagonize Alex says, he says, I don't need you dead, I just need you to wish you were. Yeah. That was actually Which, a good line.
1: It is, but he could totally do that. Like, what's the deal with these incompetent ass people? Like, he could get any average Joe on the street and torture him until he wished, you know, for something irrelevant that would give the gen a ton of power, like wish for Alex to to be completely under my control. And then he could just do that and then he could make Alex wish for whatever he wanted. It's it's hard to right. take taunting and badassery seriously when it comes from a moron. <laughs>
0: <laughs> You're right. And so Alice is just running around this party trying to find her sister, who who she just can't find. She just keeps bumping into people, and we as the audience just keep seeing all this crazy stuff happening. Like Mr. Beaumont, who just spits up and starts throwing up this giant face-crawler creature. That's actually a pretty good effect, and oh, Robert yeah. Englund, always the... Always a trooper. Pulls it off very well. And then Alex comes to this giant hall of guards, which we all, just watching it, you don't have to be a genius to know exactly where this is going. Hall of guards? Yeah, hall of statued guards. Sort of like the uh, Terracotta Army, but also from different cultures as well. Yes, they come to life when the police or security guards show up. And as I mentioned in
1: the beginning, we have a stone archer and he fires a bow. He fire well, he looses an arrow using his stone bow. And then the the guards try to attack him and all of a sudden he's stone again and the attacks don't work.
0: So none of the statue stuff really worked for me, but can we talk about the random Jack the Ripper looking guy who's just running I love- around? I loved
1: that so much.
0: They don't explain him at all where he came from. Yeah, you they can, do. I guess assume he's coming from a painting, but it's just this weird Jack the Ripper guy who honestly looks more terrifying than the djinn.
1: Uh, this is lovely. So we get an ominous shot of a painting of Jack the Ripper. And then oh, we do? It, it, yeah. Yeah, it's oh, right behind okay. him, dude. I
0: didn't clock it.
1: Yeah, so there's this really ominous shot of a painting of Jack the Ripper, and it's this very, like, twisted, demented rendition of him. And then it pans out a little bit, and we see that, that the painting has come to life, and this actual Jack the Ripper figure is going around killing people. And you're right, he's super creepy. It, it reminded me of a lot of the sort of Scooby-Doo-oriented horror Especially if, mm-hmm. if anyone's played Scooby-Doo Night of a Hundred Frights, which is a PlayStation yes. 2 game that came out in like 2002. There, there will be like paintings that will rattle around and change, and sometimes they'll explode and an actual monster will come out of it. That's what it reminded me of, and it was just very charming. Very out of place, I thought, for this film, which is mostly like the gore and, and the deaths are pretty – they're ridiculous, but they're very serious. And this just came off as a little silly, but in a fun way. I thought it was very entertaining.
0: Oh, yes. I wanted the movie with this guy. This guy who is clearly the Babadook's Appalachian cousin.
1: Yeah, he, he did look remarkably like the Babadook.
0: Alex can't find her sister, and she's looking all over for her, and she's straight up telling the djinn she is not going to wish. She's not going to wish for anything. And the djinn shows Alex where her sister is, and her sister is in a painting of a house trapped, and we kind of hear her scream. But she still relents and says, I'm not going to wish. So the genie kind of makes the picture go on fire. But I don't know if it's actual fire or if it's just supposed to be fire in the painting.
1: Which, it's worth noting, behind her in the painting are all sorts of eldritch monstrosities. Like oh, these yes. weird tentacle yes. creatures that are I love that. that. But
0: so the, really, fa- the, fu- the fire is really irrelevant at that point. It
1: might even be helpful. The helping. fire
0: would honestly help with the issue.
1: It, it is honestly really terrifying, though, because the fact that sh- it's a still shot, right? It's just a picture of her, there's no motion. And mm-hmm. yet you get the impression that. She might be living her own existence inside this artificial painting world being tormented by, by horrors. But you don't know that and you don't really know what's happening. So I actually thought that surrounded by a lot of really stupid stuff, this was a really effective uh, bit of horror.
0: But then it's undercut by Alex needing to make her third and final wish. And she recalls her conversation with the girls about stillness. And nothing mattering in that moment. So ultimately the day is saved by a perfectly capable character taking her own advice, taking her own initiative that she didn't garner throughout the film but knew all along. So just doing what she would already do and thinking for a second about what that third wish should be, which was ultimately that Mike... Torelli had not been drinking on the job two days ago and the character Mike Torelli was the one in charge of the crane and this wish honestly worried me because it could still be so twisted the the fact that he was drinking might not have been the cause for the crane dropping the box and breaking the statue but essentially how the movie plays it off is Since he wasn't drinking, nothing went wrong and the statue landed safely.
1: Which means that the gin was never released because the opal was never found and everything that's happened over the past few days is reversed and we essentially go back in time.
0: But Alex kind of knows what happened. In my
1: opinion, this ruins the film.
0: I I hate movies where things go back to the beginning as though they never happened. That was can... one of my biggest complaints with Avengers Endgame. I don't oh. like time travel that undoes time travel. Now I did now Avengers it did sort of rectify itself and I'm fine with it. But I don't like stories where time travel's involved where it undoes something.
1: It can be done well. And yes. where where it can be done well is when you get to see everything that you're taking for granted get destroyed. And there is an element of that in Wishmaster, it's not, regarding Josh and Alex, it's not the primary focus, but, like, if you look at Click, uh, the Adam Sandler movie, that's kind of an example of doing it well, where you have this entire horrifying experience that you undergo and you watch everything that you love like slip away from you and then you you somehow manage to find a way to reverse it and then you go back in time with everything that you have and now you appreciate it so much more and you get to live your life as a good and correct person. So th- there, There's kind of an element to that with A Christmas Carol, honestly. It's not exactly the same because he's seeing the future rather than going into the future. But mm-hmm. but it works. It works sometimes.
0: But the whole story isn't him going back in time before the events that were interesting happened, which yeah. is where this fails. So basically, everything that happened in the story didn't fucking happen. The reason that I, for I think ancient Persia.
1: The reason that I think it ruins the movie is because the movie reneges on its entire principle, right? What have we been doing this entire podcast, Dylan? We have been complaining about how the wishes are misconstrued in ways that make no
0: sense. So why can't you misconstrue these wishes? Yes! Okay,
1: I wish that... What's his name? It's something sounds Italian.
0: Mickey Torelli.
1: I wish that Mickey Torelli hadn't been drinking on the job. Okay, wish granted he was on meth instead. Or, okay, wish granted he had a heart attack. Or, okay, wish granted, it wasn't him. He sneezes. Him. Yeah, he sneezes. It wasn't him. It was his brother, Ricky. And Ricky was drunk <laughs> on the job. And on meth. And he had cancer. Like, you could have done anything. We have established... Or the crane gen... cable snaps. The crane cable snaps. The djinn can do basically whatever he wants, as long as he also grants your wish. That, that's not... I didn't decide that. I think that's stupid. The movie decided that. and And yet the movie forgets about that just so it can have its big badass ending. Like, you're not clever, Alex. This wasn't smart. Any sensible person could have twisted that wish in such a way that it didn't make a difference. And yet we're supposed to pretend that she's like the savior and everything goes back to normal.
0: And also it's the fact that she never really had any growth. There wasn't any growth of understanding with this. She used information she already had at her disposal that she didn't gather that she knew. At least enough to tell a bunch of say 14 and 15 year old girls earlier. It would maybe have been different if the information had came from, say, the professor or someone she cared about, but no. When you have the voiceover flashback of what she said earlier be from her, that just makes her seem a bit narcissistic. What information do I have that would help me in this moment?
1: And the lesson is irrelevant. Like, there is nothing that ties this lesson specifically to the situation with the gin. Stop and think before you act in stressful situations that is universally applicable right like this could be a movie about basketball right like like this doesn't have any pertinence and you're right it's alex's herself she's the one that says this so she's like taking great ancient world saving wisdom from herself it does seem really narcissistic
0: the thing that makes an effective final girl in my opinion is their ability to rise to the occasion. When you have the whole resolution of the climax come from a main character using information they already knew at the beginning of the movie through no circumstances revolving the story, that's not rising to the occasion. It's just not. So there's no character development. There's no resolution for the character. There's no real resolution for the story. And it ultimately makes for a very unmemorable final girl i mean in nightmare on elm street you had nancy she got uh booby traps and anti-personnel devices the book and she was making traps and stuff she rose to the occasion she did the damn thing Lori strode you can't really say much for her because she was a victim in a town that had never seen evil But she still stabbed Michael Myers a bunch of times and then eventually became an alcoholic and a gun-toting weirdo, but...
1: The only growth that you could argue she has is relative to Josh, right? How she perceives Josh and her ability to consider a relationship with him, which is just an uncomfortable topic from both perspectives and has nothing to do with the film so you're right like she doesn't rise to the occasion she doesn't grow or change as a character
0: because i think he invited her to go out and then she said no i have to go to work so basically this whole story is if she had just went out with josh none of this would have happened i feel like this whole movie was written by someone who is friend zoned and had to get back at someone
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) honestly That I would I would believe that. And so at the at the very end, we see that everything has been reversed, and therefore Josh is still alive. So Alex goes up to him and starts really aggressively hitting on him and saying a lot of the things that he said to her in the beginning of the film about like going and seeing a movie and going to dinner. And he kind of jokingly says, you know, why don't we go to a, a hot dogs and a ball game instead? And it's heavily implied, if not directly stated, that now the two of them are an item.
0: And she also knows about the whole situation. That's why she's flirting. And yes. then the end of the story just shows the inside of the statue of Ahura Mazda inside the collection room of Forgotten Gods. And we go inside the statue into the opal, and we see the throne room of the Wishmaster as he waits to be freed again.
1: Yeah. Dude, I feel exhausted.
0: so what are your final thoughts
1: i'm so i'm tired of talking about this fucking movie okay so no no in i have a lot of final thoughts on this oh my god
0: well first i just want to i just want to put out there we when we were tooling the show we started with carnival of souls Mm -hmm. and through different errors we ended up recording that about three times and talking about it offline for a good while too and every time we talked about that movie, I enjoyed talking about it every single time. Yeah. There's not enough money you could pay me to talk about this film again. If something happens with this recording, we're just going to move on to something else. How
1: about I can't... a million dollars?
0: <laughs> no. <laughs> uh,
1: okay. So, first of all, I just want to get this out of the way. Weirdly enough out of I may have already said this already so I'm sorry if I have out of all the movies we watched so far this one held my attention for the entire time I really enjoyed watching this movie I'm not gonna pretend that I didn't and for all of the the complaints that we have made it's important to talk about some of the things that this movie does right as we've both already acknowledged the body horror the special effects that aren't CGI wonderful Absolutely wonderful, genuinely impressive, and they leave an emotional impact. I really love the Jin's voice. I love how the Jin looks in his Jin form, as long as he's wearing robes, and in his human form.
0: His performance was honestly very solid.
1: Yeah, ex- except for the weird Jim Carrey grimacing, it was really solid because you knew how powerful was he was, and you knew how malevolent he was, and how eager he was going to be to just mess up somebody's life forever, and. It, it's also a good dynamic for a, what functionally is a slasher film that you're not so much concerned with who is going to die next, but with how they're going to die. Regardless of the fact that all the wishes are really stupid, ultimately they result in kills that happen in really creative and unique ways, something you're not going to see in a lot of other horror movies unless they have a heavy supernatural omnipotent element like for, uh, for, not for, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. I, I I was about to say Freddy the 13th, by the way. <laughs> uh, yeah, so for all of those reasons, like, th- this this movie has so much potential. Like, it could have been so good. And, and that's why I hate it so much. Because hot damn, did it waste that potential.
0: I feel as though this movie would find itself a little bit better with just a couple more passes on a script. I feel this script was very rushed together and I don't even think as many comparisons as we draw have drawn to Nightmare on Elm Street and Scream I don't think Wes Craven really had a lot of involvement. I just think it was more of a riding the train of clout because Scream had just came out was a phenomenal success. Scream 2 was about to come out which had so much hype behind it. Just being able to put Wes Craven's name on it was going to drive some revenue for this movie. And I don't think if you... Because this movie is only produced by Wes Craven. But when you look at the movie, it still says Wes Craven presents Wishmaster. So I feel like if this movie didn't have his name attached to it, it wouldn't have done near what nominal success it had.
1: I know that I've spent a lot of time complaining about the logic of these wishes. And I, can, I know that some people who are listening are going to think, shut up, you're overthinking it, it doesn't matter, you're just supposed to enjoy watching this guy kill people. But it's not just about me wanting to be a pedantic rules lawyer. Like this, It's incredibly important. The trope of, of the malevolent like, wish-granter relies on the fact that rules are followed. You have made a deal with some entity, and you did not pay attention to the rules or the rules can be manipulated in some way to your detriment. So the rules are very, very important. The idea that they exist and they are explicit and they will be followed. And that's why you as the victim are screwed. I, I cannot remember the, the name, but there's a story about an individual. I think he was a Pope who made a deal with the devil. Uh, are you familiar with the story? No. So the idea was that he sold his soul to the devil in exchange for you know power and wealth and the ability to you know to be the pope and to to have all these things that he wanted and the the condition was that the devil would come to collect his soul when the pope when this guy I'm not going to call him the pope because I may be misremembering but when the guy heard mass in rome and so okay I guess he wasn't the pope then because the pope would have been in rome I probably sound stupid but this is a real story I promise uh <laughs> And the guy was like, okay, no problem. I'm just never going to go to Rome. And then he's, he's at a church one day and he's listening, he's listening to the, you know, the preacher or whatnot. He's at mass and he discovers that the name of the church that he's in is, is Rome essentially Mm. or something similar to that. And so the devil comes and he takes his soul. Like. I'm sorry that I couldn't find the details. That probably sounded a bit messy. But that's the point, right? Is that the rules are explicit and they are followed, right? Yes. This doesn't work because the rules are stupid and vague and they
0: don't make any sense.
1: Sorry, rant oh, yeah. over. Do you, did you have anything final to say about that? I know it's, it's comprised a lot of this episode. Oh,
0: yes. I feel this movie did good with the gore effects. I like the villain. The CGI is awful. I don't really care for the main protagonist. It's very much a movie of its time. Did I have a good time watching it? I did just see how ludicrous the logic was gonna get. I did have a good time with it and I am strangely curious to see what the other three movies in the franchise go to. I looked them up, just at a glance and they seem to get pretty wild. So I'm wondering how how each movie is going to resolve its issue with the djinn and the third wish pretty much be what I would want to expect from it but back to this movie. I I picked this movie mostly because a lot of the movies of the 90s were trying to emulate what Scream did and this movie seemed outside of the norm but unfortunately this movie seemed to just want to follow in the vein of the later Nightmare movies, the Leprechaun movies, the later Friday the 13th films, some of the Phantasms, all of those movies, and I'm talking about the weaker entries, not the stronger ones. And I'm almost sad that this type of character didn't get a better movie to play in.
1: Yeah, that's why I'm so upset by this. There's no point in getting mad about how bad a terrible premise with no potential is. If something doesn't have the potential to be good, then you could just ignore it. This had so much potential. This could have been a really, really, really good movie. And it was not.
0: Kind of makes a good segue into our final verdict. I hear you wish this movie were deep.
1: I can't respond to that. I'm not I'm not <laughs> giving up my soul.
0: It's kind of like how they have that theory that everyone who works at the DMV is Faye because they'll always be like, can I have your name? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, you tricky, you tricky, tricky thing, you.
1: But you know, and even that sort of the the dynamic between Alex and Josh, it just doesn't make any sense from both perspectives. Like you know, from Josh's perspective, you know, has someone who's kind of like in the friend zone. It, it's just encouraging like that pester and pester and pester, and then you'll finally get it. And that's not a good thing. Don't pester also, people for dates. And also, do
0: both of these people even have jobs? I know they have jobs, but they're playing tennis in the middle of the day and then go to work. And it looks like it's about noon. So are they just going on their lunch break to play tennis?
1: But it, it to finish my point, and then at the end, it works. So the moral of the story from Josh's perspective is pester girls who don't want to go out with you. And eventually they will. And now, and which is a terrible, terrible lesson. Okay, now let's take it from Alex's perspective. This guy clearly really likes her. And she clearly does like him, but she doesn't want to date him because she likes him. She would rather date random strangers. That's a stupid Mm -hmm. lesson. And then at the end, she realizes that, you know, maybe she should give Josh a chance. And then she takes charge and is like saying all the things that, that Josh said to her, like it was her idea, which is super unethical. Like, like that, that entire growth and dynamic just doesn't work either. And the, the genie doesn't work, the main characters don't work, the romance doesn't work, the rules don't make any sense, the lessons of the story are non-existent at best and actively counterproductive at worst.
0: You could argue that the main conflict for the main character is her de- her dealing with her issues with losing people with her parents, her sister and Josh, but that's never overcome in the story. There's no resolution for that, so she still, and the, fe- the ending actually cements that. She has these issues with separation and loss still because she lives through losing her best friend, and then when he's alive she goes in to date him, so that he can't you know feasibly can't be away from her anymore
1: yeah if anything she's doubling down on any abandonment issues she might have had right yes abandonment issues probably not the right word but loss issues like you said
0: and i'm almost sad that none of these characters return for the sequels
1: oh i am i am too i didn't know that but yeah i would have kind of at least
0: none of I, I did the research on it. And none of them do. It's basically a different scenario where someone discovers the opal.
1: I would have I would have liked to at least have seen some of them return, right? Just to see their growth, not because I liked them. Uh, what growth? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But like, I would have liked I would like to
0: see growth. So again, let's let's circle back to: Do you think this movie is deep, or it needs to be cut?
1: Oh, cut, 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 cut. Which is frustrating. Because I enjoyed the process of watching it, and I enjoyed so many aspects of it. But it's one of those things where you have to say, man, this would have been a great movie if not for all the parts of it that sucked.
0: This movie needs to be cut, but my official verdict is I wish it were deep.
1: You wish it were deep, okay.
0: I wish it were deep. That's my official stance on the movie.
1: I'm just trying to figure out how that would uh, that would be misconstrued, and I think most of the things are things I don't want to say.
0: But anyways, guys, do you have anything else, Dad?
1: Nope. I'm good. I've, I've ranted about this, this movie enough.
0: All right, then. Well, I think that about wraps it up this week. Guys, if you haven't already, go ahead and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Deep Horror Pod. Again, that is Deep Horror Pod for both Twitter and Instagram, or you can email us your recommendations at DeepCutsOfHorror at gmail.com. Thank you so much, Jacob, for joining us this week. Next, we're going to have a very special guest talk about a very special movie, Cherry Falls. I'm super excited for it. I'm a big Brittany Murphy fan. And if you haven't already guys, go ahead, subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on. If you have Apple Music or Spotify, leave us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate it. And until next time, stay spooky.